And welcome back to Scream Addicts Hammer Pub. I am Jenks, your co-host. I'm sitting here with my co-host, Paul Farrell. Paul, how's it going this evening, man? What's uh, what's going on? What's happening? How you doing? It's going good. Um, do, doing well. Happy to be here at the Hammer Pub. Are you uh, sure you sound shirt. a little you sound a little tired, Paul? What's going on? What's what's I, deal I, on I your end? A, I had a day. I had a long day. What was uh, your day like, man? As I'm sure many many people have. I had to travel for work, uh, so a bit of a car ride, and then uh, had to do some very businessy things uh and you know have businessy conversations behind closed doors all day and that stuff doesn't always uh, engage my the brain in the way i want it to so it's 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 tiring uh, but i'm happy to be here now and uh talking about hammer movies particularly a frankenstein hammer movie because that's like the best hammer gets right it surely is <laughs> it's uh anytime it's frankenstein it's a treat uh you know, there's, uh, you know, generally they're just uh, a, a barrel of laughs. You know, there's no controversy. There, there are no, uh, you know, no elements that give one pause that disturb or uh, linger long after the movie. Okay, we're talking Frankenstein must be destroyed tonight. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And I, I, I'm very excited about our conversation because I, I think, well. We'll get there. I, I yeah, I think it'll be an interesting one because I have some thoughts on this movie. Oh, there, there, there are thoughts <laughs> to be thoughts. had, sir. <laughs> and All I want, right. yeah. But anyway, so it's been a long day for you. It has been uh, a weird day for me, man. Uh, tell you what, let's go ahead and dive in to our recent watches. We should probably go ahead and let listeners know that this is going to be a guest list episode. But you know what? You still get me and Paul, and well, really, that should be enough. So, Paul. So what have you seen in the last two weeks yeah. since we've recorded? Two weeks, yeah. man. And and here's the problem. Normally, I've got like two or three things. I have so many things <laughs> I want to talk about tonight. Well, I can help with one. I can help with one. I, Rather than reviewing individual installments, maybe you can just review, oh, say, well, no. an entire yeah. franchise at right. once. Right, right, right. I'm not. Don't, don't worry. I'm not going <laughs> to talk about <laughs> seven saw movies so uh i finally with the exception of spiral because i haven't gotten out to a theater yet um i i finally watched the saw franchise i i can i can kind of like hold my horror head high a little higher than i could before this was always on my sort of wall of shame you know every (laughs) every horror fan has those weird movies not weird movies but like weird things that you would think everybody's seen that somehow you just didn't see um so i rewatched all the saws and yeah i mean i guess and and jigs kind of got the play-by-play like you got texts pretty much nightly around how i was feeling and, and what i was going through um my, my primary takeaway from all of it is it's, it's basically like this this melodramatic soap opera but with like murder traps you know it's it's it, it it very much revolves around I didn't realize how much like dramatic um sort of backstory the 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 jigsaw character was gonna get. Um and how many of the movies kind of overlay on one of on top of each other. And you you've kind of mentioned this to me before, but I, I will admit it is impressive the the level of continuity they managed to stick to throughout these films. Like I was pretty shocked at um, the detail 
at which they maintain continuity from movie to movie because usually in a big sort of four quadrant well i guess this isn't really a four quadrant movie but in a big franchise that's going wide it feels to me like they often want to steer away from very specific continuity because it it might turn off viewers um but this one just leans as heavy into it as you possibly can um I think uh, for me, my, I mean, my favorites, uh, and Jinx and I have talked about this, but I think at the end of the day, my favorite is probably Saw 3. Yes. Um, which, yeah, I, I know you, you love that one as well. Um, I just think it's, I think it represents kind of the best that that continuity has to offer. Like, it, it gives you a ton of backstory about, uh, the character it's sort of it, it, you've mentioned this before but it's a love story which is really interesting it's a different kind of way of telling this story um it, it's a love story across all of its subplots too like it's it's sort of a movie exploring what a relationship kind of does to a person mentally and emotionally and what you're willing to do to see it through um and kind of be there for the one you love, um, which also serves as kind of a metaphor for what um, the Jigsaw character is kind of attempting to do um, with people. Like, because ultimately, <laughs> and I think I kind of mentioned before, I have my issues with Saw 1 because I just, I don't know, there's a lot of things about it. It's a little rough around the edges, but as the series progresses, you kind of, I kind of come around to, not that I think uh, the Jigsaw character, uh, you know, what's his what's his real name? John Kramer? Jonathan yeah. Kramer? Okay. The John Kramer character, I, I, I'm not going to say that I like totally feel sympathetic for him, but you do sort of understand where he's coming from. And he becomes a Dexter-like figure. You know, he ends up pretty much punishing people that for all intents and purposes, deserve some sort of repercussions for the things they've done in their lives. And what's happened to him is definitely like compelling. Uh, and his, uh, his, his poor wife who is a different character in every movie she's in. Um, so I can't really comment on whether I like her or not because I, yeah, she, there's like four different versions of her. Um, but yeah, so I think, I think saw three sort of, does it the best. And then my second favorite movie is probably controversial, I guess, in most rankings, and it's Jigsaw. <laughs> Which I don't understand because Jigsaw's a fucking blast. It it is. It's it's a way better movie. I, I don't know. I a part of me wonders if the reason I like Jigsaw so much is because like the way people talk about it had my expectations pretty low. Um, like I went into it with very, very low expectations, especially coming off of, uh, the final chapter, which was not a good movie, easily my least favorite in the series. Um, but Jigsaw is, is sleek. It's very well made. Um, it, it kind of gets rid of a lot of the noise. It, it really does just distill down to the traps and sort of, it, it kind of feels like an, these movies progressively feel more and more like an escape room movie, you know, kind of like that movie escape room. Uh, that, that, that movie really is just a PG 13 version of saw, um, with a big, big budget. Um, 100%. but anyway, yeah. uh, but yeah, jigsaw was 
I really enjoyed it. I thought it was incredibly well made. I liked the story. I liked, I liked how they tied it into the continuity. Like it, it does fit, um, even though it's sort of, it also feels like a reboot. Um, but it perfectly yeah. straddles the line for what that movie should have been. It, it to me, it did everything that everybody's getting all excited for Spiral about. It's like, mm-hmm. oh my god, it's not really tied into the continuity, but it's not wiping all the continuity mm-hmm. away. Spiral's going to be so cool because it's another story set within this world, but we don't have to be completely brushed up on seven movies worth of continuity oh, yeah. in order to understand what's going to happen. And that's the best kind of reboot. It's like, motherfuckers, where were you for Jigsaw? Yeah. Where was well, this excitement you know, for Jigsaw? This, because it did the same thing. This it feels like this happens in franchises sometimes. Like like I think of like H two O and then Halloween twenty eighteen, where those are very different movies, but at the same time they're kind of doing the same thing at at their core. One of them um, better. Do you want to know which one I think does better? Paul? <laughs> I might be a little controversial. Do you want me to tell you? You can. I look. I wouldn't. I would not slight you for that opinion at all. Um. I've Halloween, come, Halloween H two O is a better film, Paul. Yeah, I, I I know you feel that way. Um, I have come around on H two O. I used to hate H two O. I used <gasps> to really really not like it when I was when I was younger, much much younger. Now I love it. Now I think it's great. But you know, but I'm that way. I, I go through weird. Like, there's a good chance in ten years I'll think the first saw is amazing. Like that's just how my brain <laughs> works. It takes me time to come around to certain things. But um, no, I love both. So for me, I love H2O and I love Halloween 2018. I think they're both great. Um, but I I think it's weird that people give Halloween 2018 a ton of credit for like bringing back Jamie Lee Curtis and giving her sort of an emotional catharsis later on in life. I'm like, yeah, we, we got that. That happened. <laughs> um, but there's this sort of shared psychosis that that didn't happen. And I feel like Jigsaw and Spiral, I haven't seen Spiral yet, so I can't really like say that completely but from the trailers and everything i'm hearing it feels like spiral is very much doing the jigsaw thing it may be putting more of an emphasis on uh the chris rock like cop character than than jigsaw does but ultimately i mean it really does feel like the same idea just executed again almost you know what five years later four years later hasn't even been that long Four years. Uh, yeah, at least H two O was twenty years separated from twenty. You know, yes. like from Halloween <laughs> At least it's that. No, I uh, yeah. You're, and don't get me wrong. I like Halloween twenty eighteen. I really do. And uh, you know, I would probably go back and forth on it depending on whichever one I'm watching at the time. I just, I guess, part of the reason I'm willing to fly the flag for H two O is the fact that it seemed like man when when that movie came out in ninety eight, it was like a celebrate. Like there, okay, so. There was no fucking Twitter. You know, there was no Facebook. There was no social media. There was no horror community online per se, but there were horror movie message boards and there were the pages of Fangoria and the letters pages and whatnot. Man, when that movie came out, it was like, it felt like a gift to horror fans that everyone was jazzed about that movie coming out and everyone was so fucking excited for it. Uh, everyone was wondering why the hell they were releasing a Halloween movie in fucking summer. But beyond that, everyone was, you know, could not wait to see it. And uh, at some point, I guess I lost the plot when it comes to that movie because I didn't realize until Halloween 2018 came out that so many people seemed to hate it because Halloween 2018 seemed to give so many fans the opportunity to piss on Halloween H2O, which kind of, it threw me 
like I was I was stunned to see so much hate for it. So I will uh, I will never miss an opportunity to uh, to cheer on H two O, and because I think that movie is. Yeah. Is great. I think Halloween 2018 is really great too. It's doing something. It's doing the same thing as Halloween H2O. It's just doing it completely differently. You know? Um, yeah. Well, yeah. I, yes. They they both. I mean, I think for me, the issue I initially had with Halloween H2O was I didn't like how far they removed it from the elements that make the Halloween franchise the Halloween franchise. Like it's. It's not in Haddonfield. It's at a school. And, you know, it, it's it, it's not like it was released during the summer. Yeah. Like it, it just it felt it felt different, um, like stylistically. Of course, there's all the stuff with the masks and whatnot. I can ah, sort of forgive well, that. Although I will say it did really bother me that you could see like my, Michael's eyes a good amount in that movie. Like that always really kind of took me out of the film and like bugged me because because again it made him feel human and i didn't like that that wasn't what i wanted out of my michael myers but uh, i came around 2018 does too uh i i feel more i feel in halloween 2018 he still feels like an agent of evil um he does not feel like a man um regardless of how they show him or what they show whereas in halloween h2o it very much distinctly feels like a person like this is a person who's sick and crazy. Um, and that sort of bugged me a little bit. Um, again, I love Howie and H2O now and mainly because I've just sort of accepted what it is. It, it's, it, it feels like a scream disciple, you know, like it's mainly about these kids. And then the Jamie Lee Curtis stuff is sort of happening in the background and takes center stage in the final act. Um, but primarily it's a, you know, let's kill off these four kids, um, and, you know, give them little set piece deaths and let them run around this deserted campus, um, which is fine. You know, that's, those movies are really fun. I like those movies. Um, I, but, man, I, that's so weird that you and I have, I feel the exact opposite. I get what you're saying about the eyes in H2O, which I've always kind of dug. I dig seeing the eyes and. And I know this is controversial. I'm just, I'm just going to touch on it, and then I'm going to leap away. Just, just, just <laughs> one second, and then I'm going to hop away, Paul. I swear. I like seeing his eyes in the Rob Zombie movies. Okay, we're done. I'm not going to mention those movies again. We're, we're you just done. don't want me to like, but go into that. That's yeah. <laughs> which is just, fair. just, just. I won't mention it. Just tap I'll, and jump, man. That's I'll what I did. Um, but no, what's weird is, is like to me, I watch Halloween H two O, and to me, that's still the boogeyman. That's the guy that all the cops talk about in hushed whispers in the opening. That's the 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 boogeyman that lives in the shadows and is always seen in the background. Right? Yeah. When I get to Halloween twenty eighteen, I see a bald dude in a in an asylum wearing white get his mask back and his tools back. And instead of him being in the background, like the boogeyman, instead of seeing him skulking about in the shadows, we follow him instead as he finds another, you know, that scene when he shows up in Haddonfield and we follow him in that one long tracking shot, that to me killed any feeling that Michael Myers was the boogeyman in that movie. To me, it firmly cemented him as just a crazy fuck in a mask. Like, I... So it's interesting, and I don't think... Here's the thing. 
I, I don't think your opinion's any more or less valid than mine. I, I, I'm just kind of fascinated that we have two completely different reads on it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, and I, I need to watch it again. I've, I've, to be a hundred percent honest, I think I've only seen the new Halloween twice, maybe. I saw it once in the theater and I watched it when I got the Blu-ray. That's it. I haven't watched it again. So I'm not, and I'm kind of weird about like, I like to keep certain, like if I really like a movie, I like to kind of keep it precious and watch it more sparsely for a little while. Like, whereas I've seen the other Halloween movies a lot. (laughs) (laughs) So I can't really comment. Like when you even said that, like I only barely remember that. And I have a bad like memory. I need to watch a movie a whole bunch of times to really remember it. Well, so I can't really comment on that. I mean, I, all I can really say is just how I remember feeling about the movie, like as a whole, um, and I and, I and I agree that H2O, like, I think its intention was to still keep him the boogeyman. I mean, certainly the opening, like where they go into Loomis's office and there's like a weird drawing of Myers on the wall. And that's oh, kind of yeah. what it focuses on. Like, of course, all of that stuff, like, makes him feel like the boogeyman, like for sure. John um, It's more I, 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 I think I what I'm saying that. is. Yeah, I think it's more like the execute. I, I don't think it's that the movie wanted you to think he's a person. I don't think that. I think the movie did want to keep him the boogeyman character that he always was. I think it was so poorly executed that he comes off looking like a person. Uh, and it bothered me a lot. Um, and and so it's not so much like the movie's intention. It's more just like it being poorly put together in some ways. But the other thing that I hated as a Halloween fan was I just really didn't like that they got rid of, and this is a weird nitpicky thing that shouldn't be held against the movie, but I can't get rid of it out of my head. I don't like that they got rid of the continuity with 4, 5, and 6, because I love 4, 5, and 6. It pisses me um, off that they I hate did that. that. Like, I, I really still, hate <laughs> I still like to imagine, like, I just kind of don't pay attention when they glow. Because here's the, I don't know if you've ever read it, man, but... I remember like uh, talking about the horror community and like horror message boards back in the day. One of the hottest commodities for people to get their mitts on back in the day around like 97 uh, when Scream and Scream 2 were like, you know, the surface of the sun hot. You know, not just for horror fans, but for mainstream audiences too. And they announced this new Halloween movie. They announced that Kevin Williamson was going to write it. Now, ultimately he didn't, but he penned a seven-page treatment for Halloween 7, The Return of Laurie Strode, or The Revenge of Laurie Strode, I forget what it was called. Mm-hmm. And it leaked online. Now, ultimately, they had a guy named Robert Zappia who wrote a completely different screenplay, and I guess it, he wrote it loosely based on um, uh, Williamson's treatment, and then I think Jamie Lee Curtis did an interview once where she said, yes, Kevin has like an associate producer's credit on it, I don't even think he has a story credit on it, man. But in this interview, she was like, look, I'll testify. Like he did a page one rewrite on the screenplay and that's what we worked from. So mm-hmm. I think Williamson brought it back. You can find both things out there. You can find Williamson's treatment and you can find the original draft of Zappia's screenplay, both of which are quite different from what we ultimately got. But you know, the core of the story is still there in each. Um, but yeah, just, uh, you know, reading that original treatment was super exciting, but one of the major, I don't know if you call it a set piece, but one of the major scenes that he actually took pains to write in this little seven page treatment 
was in the school, there is a sequence where one of the bitchy students does a book report on the Halloween murders. And it was basically going to be an opportunity to catch the audience up on what had happened in the last 20 years of continuity. And they were going to cover Halloween's four, five, and six. And they were going to cover even the death of Jamie Lloyd. And there was going to be a moment where Laurie basically listens as Carrie Tate and keeps a stiff upper lip, but is close to like breaking down at hearing the daughter that she'd given up, you know, ostensibly to keep her safe was in fact murdered by Michael Myers. And I'm like, why would you not keep that? Why? Yeah, if you're going to have think... a scene that is a clips notes of the franchise, that would catch mainstream audience members up anyway, if they hadn't seen all of the movies. So why mm -hmm. do this weird retconning thing where it's like, well, we're only counting one and two. Yeah. I think they talk about that in the uh, documentary on the screen factory disc. Oh, really? Um, yeah, I think so. Cause I have heard that story and I seem to recall, I'm pretty sure it's in that doc. Um, it's a really great documentary. Like all the, the docs, the two, my two favorites from that big, like when scream did that huge box set, uh, six, six had a phenomenal documentary that went through like all of its trials and tribulations and seven did as well. And they were newly produced for that set. And I'm pretty sure they touch on that. Yeah, this that specific scene. I thought I had heard somewhere down the grapevine that they actually shot that. That that, that footage existed. Yes. Like the scene. Where? Yeah, the scene where Lori's listening to a book report. Yeah, I'm pretty sure that was shot. Or at least I heard from one of the producers or something that it was shot at one point on a dock. I'll have to go pull that out after this. We but need I'm... a 10 hour documentary on the Halloween franchise done by the same guys who did uh, uh, Crystal Lake Memories. There's, there's and, that uh, one doc. Never Sleep. Decent. Oh. It's not as in depth, but there's that one. What was it called? But it came out on DVD a long time ago. Oh, uh, 25 um, Years of Terror. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I have that somewhere floating around. I like but that. I feel like the Scream docs were more in depth than that was on each movie. But. I don't know. Now we're talking. I love that we're like talking about Halloween movies. I did not watch those over the last yep. two weeks, but there. <laughs> but here we are. All right, um, man. So you mentioned Saw. I will go ahead and say without spoilers, uh, I did see Spiral uh, three times in the theater already. <laughs> not sure. I'm. You know, part of it is the fact that. I'm just now starting to feel comfortable going back to movie theaters, man, and there's nothing else planned, and so why not see a horror movie on the big screen over and over and over again? It gives me an excuse to go and kick my feet up and uh, catch a movie on the big screen, right? I will say that I actually really dug Spiral. It is um, even less than Jigsaw. It feels less of a piece with the Saw series stylistically. Like, it feels much more... Uh, feels much more like seven it feels much more like those serial killer thrillers that we got in seven's wake back in uh you know back in the 90s like kiss the girls or along came a spider or you know movies of that ilk um anyone expecting a lot of jigsaw or john kramer action or any you know john kramer flashbacks like i'll go ahead and spoil this for you because i think it's not so much a spoiler as it's just gonna set your expectations properly Tobin Bell is not in this movie. Um, you see a picture of John, you see a couple of pictures of John Kramer. Uh, that's, that's it. Like it's, it literally is. It's, it's what it's, 
describing in the marketing like it's about a copycat. It's set within the world of Saw, and that's pretty much it. Uh, I think it's... I, I had a lot of fun with it. The traps are all... Uh, you know, I, I, I do love the Saw franchise. I revisited them all recently, too. I, uh, I rewatched all eight of the previous movies leading up to Spiral. And it's fun to watch that series, like its continuity grow ever more convoluted. But it's also fun to watch all of the traps get bigger and more unwieldy. And, you know, it, you just have to wonder how many geniuses worked on these things to get them to work so perfectly. Like who, you know, what kind of... What kind of research, what kind of time did John Kramer have to put into these massive overwrought traps that bogged down the, the, the latter half of that franchise? You know what I mean? What I like about Spiral is that it gets back to traps where you could be like, oh, I could see somebody setting that up. That would be, oh, okay, I get it, you know, but they're still painful. Like, they're traps that you can feel. You know, I'm, I'm reminded of that John Carpenter quote about the thing, you know, um, or whether it was Carpenter quote or somebody talking about Carpenter. I think it was a review that was reprinted in uh, Shadows of Eden, the, the book about uh, Clive Barker. But they were talking about the thing and how you can have these scenes where heads are pulling themselves off of bodies and, you know, large gaping maws open up in chest cavities and, you know, abdomens and crunch off arms and you can have dismemberment and blood spraying the walls and what's the scene that makes people squirm in that movie it's the scene where everybody cuts open the the heads of their thumbs to bleed into little dishes and somebody noted it's like because john carpenter understands that in the midst of all the spectacle and the craziness he also knows that if you really want to hurt an audience you got to show them something they can feel and I feel like Spiral gets back to that. Like, you can feel the traps in this movie. It hurts to watch some of this stuff happen. Um, which is not, you know, to me, like, I, I know the previous Saw movies, that was, like, one of the main reasons to actually dive in and check them out. And sure, that's that's part of the fun, too. But I will say, like, the story itself is, you know, is is pretty solid. You know, it's not spectacular. I do appreciate the fact that you know, there isn't a central game. Like, it really is kind of like an investigation. It is a whodunit, or rather, who's doing it. Uh, it's kind of a why done it in a way. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it's it's all sort of anchored by a surprisingly great performance by Chris Rock. Um, I'm, I was pleasantly surprised by how well he acquits himself as a leading man in a movie like this. Um so anyway, I, I will say, you know, I've, I, the movie has been weirdly divisive online. I've seen a lot of people really love it. I've seen a lot of people really hate it. But one of the weirdest things that I've seen is that people are really sort of turning on it because the film doesn't really uphold this sort of notion that it was going to be a deeply like sociopolitical movie and very, uh, however you pronounce it, like a cab or whatever the fuck, um, you know, but, you know, it's by virtue of the fact that cops were the targets in the film and the movie doesn't really bear that out. So it seemed like some viewers online sort of have turned on the movie because of that. And I'm like, you know, I I've seen all of the marketing for this movie. That movie was never promised to you. You know, it's it's so it, it's not that it doesn't deal with any weighty themes at all. You know, like police corruption definitely factors into the plot, but 
a fucking Saw reboot is not going to be this heavy meditation on <laughs> systemic issues and no. you know police corruption. I mean, come they, on. They, they got they got all that out of their system in Saw Six. That, that was that was the preachy one, but it was good. <laughs> yeah, no, I, and here's the thing: could could Spiral have been that? Sure, it absolutely could have, but I don't understand taking a movie to task for no. something that you wanted it to be, but it never yeah. promised you it was going to be. You know what I mean? That that happens a lot, though. People sure. get mad at movies for it not being what they thought it was going to be or what they think it should have been. Um, unfortunately. But yeah, I agree. I, I, I'm really looking forward to Spiral, and I'm kind of, and I'm trying to set my expectations appropriately, but I'm kind of expecting it to be up there for me, based on everything you're saying. Like, it, it sounds like it's going to be in the Jigsaw camp, and as that's like my second favorite, I feel like I'm going to like Spiral quite a bit. <laughs> it is, I will say this, it is way, way, way more Jigsaw than it is anything Saw related, mm-hmm. for better and worse because yeah here's the thing you said the saw three is your favorite saw three is hands down my favorite i adore that movie um you know neither jigsaw nor spiral have anything kind of approaching that sort of emotional depth which to me sure. is the main sure. draw of that movie that's that's why i adore that movie i love those characters and i i would agree yeah, yeah. it's a love story it's a love story between monsters and i love that and you know the the series never quite got back to that zenith for me and uh yeah. you know the same is true of jigsaw and spiral but what i will say is that jigsaw and spiral are both exceedingly well-made movies not only on a technical level but also just they both fucking move you know like there is yeah. there's a skill yeah. to the set pieces and the, the i mean yeah they both move like bats out of hell and i i really appreciate that because i felt like for some of the lesser entries in the saw franchise they started rely even even for as many times as I would roll my eyes at people laying the charge against them that they were merely torture porn yada yada blah 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 you know who watches these movies uh, whack 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 but um, I will say it did feel like some of the lesser entries in that series did trade solely on the fact that they had those big torture set pieces and then everything else was kind of an afterthought. Um, I, I so Jigsaw and Spiral to me is kind of like you know as far as putting together a solidly told story, I think those two movies are probably the best examples of what that series can be at its finest. Um, so yeah, Spiral, Spiral, I give it a thumbs up. Like I said, I've seen it three three times in the theater, so clearly, wow. I, uh, that's I dedication. It. it is, it is. So Paul, what <laughs> else? Uh, what else have you seen recently? Um. Okay, uh, I've seen a lot of things i'll probably jump to i'll skip the one that you really hated because it's probably we'll see which one, one which one did i really hate you well then i wouldn't be skipping it <laughs> i can't i honestly can't remember uh initiation all oh, that fucking movie <laughs> yeah i said i would skip it so we don't I, have to like, i forgot about it, it i i successfully because i loved it you hated movie. it but we talked about it a lot so i feel i feel like i can probably you know Move past it. That's fine by me. I've moved past it. Uh, uh, the only thing I'll say about it is it's it's great. I disagree with Jenks. It's really smart, subversive horror. Uh, check it out. It's fun. It's a slasher, okay. and I like slashers. Okay. Oh my god! Um, I would all American murder. <laughs> smart? No. Subversive yes, yes. in what way? Absolutely. Uh, no, it's fine. Hey, you got to. Here's I'm going to pull a card. You got to 
compliment Rob Zombie's Halloween without me saying anything. All right. So. All right. All right. right. Fair. 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 I'm going to move on to a Vinegar Syndrome release. All American Murder, starring Christopher Walken, of all people. Uh, Have you ever heard of this movie from 1991? Uh, Only recently. I've seen everybody tweeting about it. I guess I need to pick it up because I have never I had never heard of this movie before. And it sounds. I I don't know if the plot itself sounds kind of gonzo and batshit or just Eh. the fact that it has the cast that it does in a movie like that is kind of batshit to me. Yeah, it's it's something. (laughs) Um, Okay, so it is it is very much like my take on it was it feels like if you took a if you took the idea of like a 90s direct to video horror slash police procedural melodrama like that little section or idea in a video store and you just compressed that into a single movie it would just be this movie like it is so that idea um it's basically this kid who's the son of a judge uh and keeps getting kicked out of schools the judge keeps pulling strings for him, a judge who in New York. So he's got some clout and power and he's running for higher office. And he's kind of like, okay, this is your last chance. This is your last school. You know, this is the last time I'm going to bail you out. So don't mess this up. And he sends him to the school. And this kid is like, you know, a real like early nineties, nineties, nineties slacker kind of kid, you know, like he, he thinks he's such a badass, but it's kind of lame by today's standards. <laughs> like he's just kind of snarky and sarcastic and smokes pot from time to time. Like that's the extent of his being bad. Um, <laughs> and so he goes to this new college um, and he immediately befriends uh this very pretty girl who's like a cheerleader and the valedictorian and going places um and everybody is sort of angry that he's uh befriending her and clearly trying to date her and from what it seems kind of winning her over it now the movie is pretty tone deaf with how it handles these characters for example this kid like practically stalks her like he's like spying on her and like looking around bushes and watching her and stuff while she doesn't know but we're supposed to think this is like like a meat cute kind of thing like so the movie doesn't really understand what it's doing um but anyway none of that really matters and i don't know how far to go i'll just i'll just spoil sort of the impetus for what ends up happening so he ends up like dating this girl and all seems well. Um, and then uh, after uh, a, a date one night and, and again, things seem to be going very well with her. He's going to turn his life around because he wants to be in a relationship with her. And that's the only path he sees to being able to, to do that. He uh, goes to meet her at her sorority or he's walking home, I guess. And all of a sudden he hears like screaming and he, runs back and she like runs out of the sorority and all of a sudden like some weird figure comes out with a fucking blowtorch <laughs> and just murders the shit out of her with fire <laughs> like right in front of him and like burns her to a crisp with a blowtorch and 
and and then he's just kind of standing there and this and whoever did it like gets away and i should also mention uh i'm kind of burying the lead on this he's sort of like labeled as a kind of a pyro like he has lit things on fire before so this is like very clearly gonna look like he murdered this girl um and that's sort of the kickoff to the rest of the movie where he's trying to solve the murder slash murders that end up occurring. And the cop who's sort of like tasked with bringing him in and arresting him is Christopher Walken and Walken just has a hunch that this kid might be innocent. And that's kind of what kicks it all off. Um, Where it all goes is pretty bonkers and pretty bizarre um it's it's a weird movie it it treats itself very seriously like it takes all of these like it is not there's not even an ounce of sarcasm or irony to any of this like it thinks it's a very serious film i did laugh a lot i did laugh a lot i'm not gonna lie um part of it is the movie is scored with like weird pop music that is as over the top on the nose emotionally to what's happening as you could possibly be. And it's often very funny. Um, like when certain songs kick in in a scene that like it's, it, it reminds me of like a Trey Parker, Matt stone thing in South park where like some emotional song is playing. That's like, it's like he felt sad and he's walking down the road, you know, that kind of thing. And it just way too on the nose for what's happening. Um, there's a lot of that. Um, but I will say Christopher Walken, like, is acting the hell out of the role he's in. Like, he is giving it his all and doing a good job. Uh, but the movie isn't good, but it's very, very entertaining. Uh, so I I don't know. I walked away from it very pleased. <laughs> so when the Vinegar Syndrome sale comes up this weekend, I should be snagging this. I... This is one I feel like I can confidently recommend because I think even if you don't think it's a great movie, I think you'll, I think it's a very fun one to watch. Okay. I can do that. I can, uh, I think that sounds pretty fun. I dig. Yeah. I'm okay with fun. Like it doesn't necessarily have to be great. doesn't even have to be good, but if you can just give me fun. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, and again, it's like sort of a slasher. I wouldn't call it like a full on slasher because it takes a minute to get, and I apologize. I spoiled a little bit about the movie. Like her being killed is, is a spoiler, but it's, it's an early enough spoil. And plus I feel like that's a thing that would get people to watch it. (laughs) I feel like knowing that that occurs like is enough. And then there's enough other things that happen that you don't know yet that will still make the movie worth watching. Because it's very much set up like a mystery, like, you know, like a whodunit. Like, how, why is this happening? Who did it? You know, what, what's the backstory and history here? And that definitely unravels. And, and admittedly, an interesting way. Um, I was kind of impressed with where it all went. I thought the ending was pretty cool. So, yeah, it's a definite recommend for me. All right, all right, I'll check it out. So, All-American Murder. Okay. I uh, I already have a couple of titles sort of uh, in mind for that sale, so I guess uh, it's not going to hurt anything to just throw that one in, too. Why, why not? Yeah. Why not at this point, right? <laughs> Paul, I saw uh, Army of the Dead. Oh, uh, I saw that, too. Yeah, the Snyder Cut. You know, I didn't the pull Snyder around with, uh, yes, with Joss Whedon's theatrical on that one. You know, I just went right <laughs> for the director's cut. Um, 
Man, I got to tell you, uh, I'm seeing a lot of divisive things on this one on Twitter, too. I've seen people love it. I've seen people hate it. I've seen people uh, I've seen people bash it, and I'm fairly certain that they didn't even watch it. Uh, it it's Man, it's a weird <laughs> thing with Snyder where, man, it runs hot and cold with him. Like, there are some fans that might very well kill for him, and there are others who just can't wait to bash everything he fucking does. I do not understand it. There need to be studies done on that guy and critical reaction to him and his movies, because it's, I don't know anybody else out there who was as divisive a a, a filmmaker in that, you know, not even talking about his work. I'm talking just about the fact that he works just the fact that he's making anything, it's either the greatest or the worst to a lot more people, I think, than most filmmakers have to contend with. Um, but that said, like I, for the most part, I think the guy's batting average is pretty damn solid. Um, I personally had a fucking blast with Army of the Dead. I, I, It was everything that I wanted it to be. I know I let it, Paul and I texted about this after I watched it and I I led with the negative stuff first simply because that was the last thing I had to work with because as much as I enjoyed the movie I think it stumbles pretty hard in about its last 5 minutes not enough to kill the movie for me at all it just stands it just it to me its flaws stand out in greater relief because they're at the very end of an otherwise really really good just fucking fun movie um i i love seeing snyder do fast zombies again that's always a blast i love seeing him fuck around with greek mythology in sort of nebulous ways thematically like i'm just like there's there's something there i don't know what it is but he's he's having fun so good on you zach uh, you know, but it's mostly, it's just fun to watch him kind of do his riff on aliens a bit and just, you know, throw together this ragtag bunch of badasses. Like I think somebody said that, uh, somebody noted that one of the characters was very much like Vasquez from aliens and somebody corrected them. I think rightly so by saying the entire team is just a bunch of Vasquez's like that's, <laughs> <laughs> and I think that's pretty accurate. Uh, but you know what? It's just, I, I think he's one of the, you know, whether you're somebody who appreciates his work or not, I think one thing that gets left out of the conversation is that he's one of the best shooters that's currently working in Hollywood. I know a lot of people resisted the visual style that he kind of brought to this movie. He does this really interesting thing, I think, anyway, with uh, this very, very shallow depth of field in the movie. I think it worked perfectly. I, I really dug the look of this movie. I think it had a lot of energy. I liked all of the characters. I thought the performances were solid. It's two and a half hours. And it, they, again, to use this phrase, it moves like a bat out of hell. It did not seem long to me at all. I, as a matter of fact, it felt like the entire thing was over 90 minutes. Um, I just, you know, I had a couple of issues with where it all wound up. Unfortunately, the movie's less than a week old at the time that we're recording this. It's going to be a week old the time this podcast goes up. So I hesitate to dive heavily into spoilers. And unfortunately, to talk about my issues with the movie, I would have to do that. So I'm going to hold off. And I'll just say that even for my concerns with uh, how it landed, you know, how it stuck the landing or maybe mm-hmm. didn't quite stick the landing. I'll just say that overall, I still give the movie a thumbs up and hardly recommend that any horror fan you know, check it out. 
Yeah, yeah. For me, um, so I loved Army of the Dead. I I thought it was phenomenal. I thought it was everything I wanted it to be. It was a big fun roller coaster. You know, it was just it's just we don't get enough. We get a lot of big, dumb, fun movies in this world, right? We get a lot of like, and most of them are Marvel <laughs> movies. Most of them are like superheroes. So when horror gets that treatment, I am always there for it. Um, and yeah, like, sure. Like, does everything add up? Does the script all work? No, but it never does in movies like that. I don't know. And in these big behemoth, two and a half hour blockbusters of which there are many. Um, there's often stuff that doesn't quite work stuff that you kind of have to just forgive and, you know, little sort of conveniences that they put into the plot. So that way they can have their big character moments that they want to have. Um, all of that is there and present, but it's all outweighed by the iconic iconography that he's dealing with the, the execution of the zombies, um, the mythology he builds around the undead in this movie is really interesting and has all kinds of odd threads that like, not that they go nowhere, but they're just not fully explored, making the world feel big and vast and impressive. And I think that's really cool. Um, I loved the idea of alpha zombies. I thought that was really neat. Um, and sort of like a higher class of zombie that is sort of in control. And then maybe like a lower class. That's more of the brood, more of the, you know, they just kind of mindlessly eat the zombies that we're used to. Um, the idiosyncratic crew was amazing. Um, I loved, it's one of the few crew movies where I liked everybody in the crew. Uh, a lot of times there's like one or two characters. I'm like, ah, that character's boring or I don't like that particular character. I feel like, Everybody in this movie was interesting and fun yeah. um, and did a good job uh, uh, at, at what it was attempting to do. Um, and, and finally, again, um, the opening sequence was amazing. <laughs> uh, the, I felt I, I, I I'm going to be honest. And I've said this before. I'm kind of a, uh, Oh, I don't know. I, I, I'm emotionally very, very, very easy to manipulate. And I'm going to be honest, this movie has an opening credit sequence that's basically without dialogue. It's set over a really great rendition of a, like a Vegas kind of song um, that, that goes from being exciting to kind of more me uh, melancholy. It was Viva and Las Vegas, I think. Viva right? La Ve uh, yeah, Viva Las Vegas. And it basically... What I loved about it was it's a movie <laughs> like the opening is a whole movie's worth of content like that could have just been the movie. This this opening could have just been stretched out and without dialogue, he tells the story of like a full two hour movie. And by the end of it, I got choked up. I did. I, 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 I will admit this. I, but then again, I get choked up at Folgers commercials, but um, I, I got choked up at the end. I, I, he completely had me and it tells enough story again without dialogue, which is just pure cinema um, to, to kind of prepare you for what the next portion of this movie is going to be. Um, and gives these characters a reason to sort of perform a heist that feels unique and different within the genre. Um, I, I love that they're not going in there for some altruistic reason. They're going in there because they're like, you know, what? maybe we deserve a win. We deserve something for ourselves for once. 
we we've been doing all these things for other people. Let's just do something for us. I think that's a really cool sort of perspective to have. I mean, certainly any heist movie is a selfish act, um, but in a zombie yeah. apocalypse, it, it feels unique. It does, but you're absolutely right. It, you know, it it would have been so easy and so very contrived if they had made it like, you know, whatever they were retrieving inside of Vegas would have had some sort of uh, impact on mankind. Maybe they were saving the world in some way. You know, this, and it's like, no, no, they're just they're sick of being poor. They're they're <laughs> sick of being beat down. They have an opportunity. You know, they have a brass ring there and they go for it and you know i you're absolutely right you know they pack all of that emotion into that montage in the very opening so that by the time you meet all these characters you already have a shorthand with them you don't yeah. need to reintroduce them because you already know who they are and what they're about and it's like that's yeah. so that's so damn smart um yeah. yeah man i really you know and it's funny too you were talking about it but the threads that kind of currently don't go anywhere but I, I remember watching Sucker Punch on the big screen. I previewed it at the theater that I worked at with some friends, and we all walked out kind of, you know, that was the first Zack Snyder movie that I didn't really care for, at least not initially, and we were all kind of grumbling about how very slight that it all felt. And then the more we talked about it and the more we sort of peeled the onion, we realized, like, oh, no, there's actually a great more depth here than we were thinking, and there's, you know, there are more tricks at play in the storytelling than maybe you might realize at first. And yeah. I kind of feel like Army of the Dead is the same way. You know, people have been having a lot of fun on Twitter this past weekend pointing out, you know, like, I, okay, this isn't that spoilery given that I'm dealing with stuff that happens in the first half of the movie. But like, you know, in the opening, in the background, you can see two UFOs, you know, uh, right. later yeah. on in the movie, there are zombies that have glowing blue eyes and one of them gets shot and you see like a metal endoskeleton underneath you know there is a bizarre story you know or it's not so much a story as a uh a, a, a what if you know concerning the nature of their mission uh that i won't spoil but you know it comes yeah. off as like this weird kind of like well, that's a strange thing to put in a movie like this, just out of nowhere. But then people were pointing out all these little Easter eggs on Twitter. And it's like, okay, is this movie doing something uh, on a, is it telling a much more fantastical like tale than, you know, we might've given it credit for, you know, on first viewing, you know, is there extra stuff going on there in the text that is, uh, you know, maybe going to lead to further installments? I don't know. I know that there is going to be a, uh, an animated series about the, uh, you know, Scott Ward's crew, the, uh, you know, the Batista character. And uh, there is going to be a romantic comedy heist film called Army of Thieves. By the way, Paul, when I started this conversation, did I say Army of the Dead or did I say Army of Darkness? Because I, I, I want to say <laughs> I, I said I Army of Darkness. I couldn't tell you. I, th I think you said <laughs> Army of the Dead, but, okay, you know. Who knows? I'm talking I'm, about Army of the Dead. I'm a little I'm tired, so I might have uh, <laughs> checked out on that one. I don't know. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. But, uh, no, with, uh, you know, they're they're doing a romantic comedy heist film starring Dieter, the uh, the, 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 the French safe cracker. Oh, he's it's one of my so favorite great. characters. And now so he's going to get his own kind of low-budget romantic comedy heist film set in Europe that precedes the events of this movie. And it's like... That to me is such a fucking nutty way 
to expand this franchise. And given that, and then everything else that's coming out about the movie, like people prizing away these little uh, interesting details that might mean so much more on second viewing. I, I, I just love that. I love the fact that it's weirder than it needs to be. And it's, striving to do something more than just be what we expect it to be, which is, you know, a big, dumb, fun zombie, you know, action flick. You know, I, I can't applaud it enough for that again. You know, did I have a couple of issues with it? Yeah, but it's not enough to knock my enjoyment on it. And I, I, I can't wait to watch it again. I'm going to watch yeah. it at some point this week. And we just, we have to hope that uh Tignataro gets, her Oscar for her performance as Mary Ann Peters because she was amazing. She was amazing. Not only was she amazing in the movie, she would have been uh, amazing, amazing in the movie no matter what. Yeah. But the fact that she had nobody to play off of, the fact that oh that, en- yeah. the fact that that entire performance was captured just with her and they inserted her into the movie in place of that fuckhead comedian uh, that they cast in the first place. Who who, who did she replace? Uh, I know she, I forgot who she replaced. It's this comedian who's always been rumored to be a complete asshole named Chris Delia. What's crazy is there is a Netflix show called You, uh, which is actually quite good. It's very, it's a little dextery in its own way, but uh, it's a lot of fun. Um, anyway, in the second season, comedian Chris Delia plays a comedian who has a thing for young girls, like, mm-hmm. you know, messing around with like 14, 15, 16 year olds. Right. And, uh, life imitating art, uh, I guess, or maybe it was the other way around. Who knows? But, mm-hmm. um, yeah, in real life, it turns out that that dude, uh, uh, apparently has a thing for younger girls. And so he got called on it and there are also like assault allegations against him. So oh, wow. Net- Netflix did the right thing. They dropped apparently millions in order to seamlessly integrate a completely different actor in the form of Tignataro, who's amazing in the movie. Well, and they, they shot her by herself and basically, yeah, pasted her into the movie and she's friggin' fantastic. Uh, it was the best decision they could have ever made <laughs> because <laughs> Tignataro in that film, like, honestly, I think she adds like a star to my review. Like, I I really think, like, on Letterboxd, I gave it a four out of five. And I think that that fourth star is just for her. (laughs) I think that's fair. I do. She was so good in every scene. It just, yeah. Oh, my gosh. I love her. The opening scene alone, when you have, like. Oh, so good. When they have to pitch, you know, when they they're sort of like figuring out how they're going to pitch it to each of these team members that, okay, we got a job, but we have to go into the heart of zombie overrun Vegas before a nuke drops. You would expect that to be a hard sell for anyone. And I love in her first two seconds, she's like, got it. I'm in need the money. Let's do that. You know, I just love how he's like, don't you want to know what it's about? And she's like, no, you said $2 million. Why would I want to know what it's about? Like that's, no, <laughs> she's like, I'm just, I'm going to do it. <laughs> that would change my life in a significant yeah, she's way. Like, that would completely Let's change my life. I, like, don't tell me what it's about. I don't want to know what it's about. It's going to be terrible, <laughs> but I'll do it. <laughs> yeah. It, it just sets the stage for what kind of movie this will be because it, it, I don't know. I feel like Snyder. Look, I, I get that. they're Like you said, I don't want to rehash all the Snyder stuff. I, I haven't seen, 
a lot of the movies that he's lambasted for. Like, as you know, I've the only Snyder DC film I've watched is Man of Steel, and I watched it like a month ago. Um, and I liked it. I thought it was good. Like, I don't, I do not for the life of me understand why people don't like Zack Snyder. Watchmen is one of the best movies ever. Dawn of the Dead remake is amazing. Like almost everything he's made is like a great movie. One of the best movies of the year that it came out. So wherever this weird, like we hate Zack Snyder thing has come from, I think it's almost and I hate to say it this way, but I think it's almost because his fandom is so toxic. And please don't at me. <laughs> I'm not. Yeah, I know I'm making a sweeping broad statement. I probably shouldn't. But I feel like there's a lot of people out there that that kind of give him a bad name by acting. A, it's like Star Wars people. Well, you know, like it's sort of like yes. creating a toxic fandom around something when it isn't that thing's fault. Well, but at the you know, but at the same time, I think a lot of his diehard supporters who push so hard for that. And here's the thing: I'm not on. I'm not in either camp. I'm just a dude that likes his movies. Yeah, like so that's am I. it. You know, and I'm I'm also Certainly a guy. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm also a guy who's thrown the occasional stone at his DC work. So I'm not really. I don't belong in either camp. But watching it from afar, it's like that toxicity seems to exist on both sides of him, but also there are people who, you know, there are some people who just don't like his movies and that's fine. There are some people who love his movies and, you know, they, uh, when they did the release, the Snyder cut thing, you know, they raised a lot of money for like suicide prevention and stuff, you know, in honor of his daughter and, you know, all of that's great. But then you also have people on both sides, you know, a lot of his fans, are wonderful. A lot of his fans are fucking toxic, but at the same time, like I remember when DC fandom or whatever the hell it was called, uh, happened last year. And I remember somebody, what was it? Somebody had leaked a trailer for, uh, you know, his justice league movie, like the Snyder cut and like pissed all over it in advance of them premiering it on there. And he, and somebody tried to poke him on it. And he just had this really pithy, like sarcastic reply that I thought was a lot of fun. And I think I tweeted something like, you know, it's nice to see filmmakers, you know, remind people that they're not there just to take your abuse, you know? And some dude, like, out of nowhere, flipped the fuck out. He's like, what, are you a fucking Snyder bro? Are you like one of those Snyder bros who just defends me no matter what? Have you ever thought about everybody was going to watch that trailer anyway? And I don't understand why you're... You know? And I'm just like, okay, so you're a fucking crazy person is what you are. I'm just going to go ahead and block you, sir. Um, So I've seen it. I've seen it on both sides. It's weird to me. Again, I I wasn't joking earlier. I really would like to see somebody write a study at length about what it is about that dude's movies that creates such a bile on either side of them. You know, I, and I've been thinking about this. We talk about toxic fandoms a lot. I think there's an equal problem with toxic anti fandoms. <laughs> um, I think whenever a toxic fandom arises, a toxic anti fandom also arises and they're equally at fault. So I think both sides of that extreme uh, are contributors to the problem that they're each complaining about. <laughs> Dude, there were, I kid you not uh, an hour before we hopped on here. 
somebody had posted screenshots on Twitter because Army of the Dead came out this week. So, of course, people are talking about him and, you know, his stuff again. People were posting screenshots of these fuckheads on Twitter making fun of the fact that his daughter killed herself. Like, oh, if I had a dad, they'd move. That's, if I, that's so fucked up. Dude, I'm not like one of them was seriously something like if uh, if I had a dad who made movies like Zack Snyder, I suppose I'd kill myself, too. Oh, what, that's what kind of like... fucking lump of dog shit do you have to be to even oh. think something like that, let alone it, put it out into the world? It's it's the same thing that Kevin Smith tackled in Jay and Silent Bob Strikes Back. <laughs> Jay, and, Jay and Silent Bob are fucking cloud shoes. <laughs> Who the? And then they fly to the kid, the twelve-year-old kid's house, and beat the shit out of him. <laughs> honestly, honestly, you know what? But that's what it is. If it's all those twelve-year-olds, if all those twelve-year-olds back in two thousand one who acted like that had actually gotten their asses stomped on the saying, curb. It's, it's, I think the world would be a better place to today. Is, <laughs> I, I look far be it for me to bring up Jalen silent Bob strike back in such a serious conversation about suicide. You can always, you but, can always bring up Jalen silent but, Bob strike. But I think that it's pertinent because at the end of the day, these people say these things for attention because they know there's ultimately going to be no accountability at all. Like the worst that's going to happen is that they get tweeted at by a bunch of people, which is exactly what they want. Um, you know, there's no real world accountability for this stuff unless you're somebody with something to lose, unless you're somebody who actually is a personality on social media, at, at which point you wouldn't say these things. Yeah. Um, or if you did, you'd be, and I don't, I do not want to get into the cancel stuff, but you know what I mean? Like if you did say something like this, you would be brought to task, which is why most of the time people like that just stay silent. So, you know, I, I just try to stay out of all of it. But at the end of the day, you know, if someone asks me, Hey, how do you feel about Zack Snyder? My, my thought is he's a very talented filmmaker who generally makes great movies. <laughs> I would agree. I would I agree. Think, I don't see how that's controversial. That is just bizarre to me. But you're right. Like people can have their own opinions. But the minute someone tries to attack me for liking this movie, then that says more about them than it does about me. No, I agree. Paul, we are over an hour in. I tell you no. what, rather than taking two separate titles each, how about we tackle one more title that I know you and I have both watched? Let's talk for just a few minutes. Yeah. Let's quickly. talk a little. Let's talk a little seance. Okay, that's fine. Because we both, yeah, we've we the, we talk about these movies at length at this point. Do you want to start, or do you want me to start, or how do we want to do this? <laughs> you know, I, yeah, I, I I'll dive in here. Okay, uh, well, you wait, go no, ahead. I, no, 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 no. I'm sorry. I brought up Army of the Dead. You go ahead and start with Seance. Okay. Um. So, Seance is Simon Barrett's. Uh. I. I. I it's his directorial debut right like he made something yes, before yeah. this but this for all intents and purposes um so simon barrett for i mean i'm sure everyone listening probably knows this but he wrote like the guest he wrote the new blair witch i believe he wrote did he co-write your next or did he write it i think he i think he wrote it i that thought he co-wrote something with adam wingard he, he generally works with adam wingard right um and uh this is his first sort of solo effort um, 
And I'll start out by saying that I really respect Simon Barrett's work. Um, I was really excited to watch this movie primarily because of that. Um, and so uh, it is a movie. It's set at an all girls school. Um, it gave me very much. Um, and, and I like this movie, but it gave me the like the woods vibes kind of oh, like totally, the Lucky totally. McKee movie. Um, although I think uh, spoiler, I think that movie is far more effective uh, yes. and, and much better made. Um, but it's kind of that sort of feel and, and, and look and, and uh, plot. A uh, girl is sort of transferring to the school. Um, a death has occurred there. It's set up like a ghost story. So um, they were, you know, these girls are holding a seance in the bathroom. They're trying to conjure the spirit of a girl that had uh, committed suicide there some years prior. Um, and uh, after holding the seance and some strange things occurring, one of the girls that was a part of it goes to her room uh, we're led to believe something sort of supernatural happens. And then when we see her again, she has uh, fallen out of her window and is dead. Uh, this opens up a spot at the school, in which case a new girl transfers in. And uh, that's sort of where we begin with this new girl coming into the school, everyone treating her like shit um, because it's very clicky and snobbish. And uh, yeah, and she is sort of dealing with odd happenings in her room sort of suggesting that the presence of the girl who died has not yet left the school. Um, the, the movie is very dull. Uh, it, it, yeah. it feels like it's trying really hard to occupy that space that sort of, I feel like Oz Perkins has really nailed where like his movies are really deliberately paced, um, oh which is a word. Yeah, yeah. It's a word I like, or a phrase I like much better than slow. <laughs> deliberately paced. Um, well, deliberately but, but paced with, is what you say when it works. <laughs> right, correct. Yeah. And in Oz Perkins, make no mistake. I adore his movies, um, you know, but I think about like Black Coat's Daughter which does some similar things to what seance is doing, but seance is a pale imitation. Seance is what happens, you know, instead of deliberately paced, you come off drearily dull and it, it, it treats its characters and its premise with so much ambiguity uh, that everything just emerges as archetypal rather than fleshed out and nothing holds any weight at all. Um, and the worst crime of all is that it's boring and drab. Um, there's no visual acuity to the filmmaking. Um, it is you, you, not to take some of your ideas, Jinx, but you mentioned like it feels very cheaply digitally shot, um, which is a thing that is I get it. I totally get it. Like like things are on a budget these days, but there are things you can do to kind of liven up the color palette, um, even if you want it to be. Uh, a, a drab landscape and 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 let's say you're not going to do that let's say you're just going to rely on the characterizations well then put more effort into the characters because none of these characters work <laughs> um there's not a single person in this movie that i really cared about um nobody really has a personality um even our protagonist is a blank slate which is later revealed to be a purposeful decision but it doesn't work uh, at all, really. Um, so, you know, it, 
it all sort of builds to a final act that admittedly does pay off the plot in an interesting way and gives us really the best 15 minutes the movie has. But the inconsistency of the journey at large does not make those last 15 minutes worth the previous 75. Um, So that's kind of my broad stroke take. (laughs) Yeah. Broad hell. I think you covered everything, Paul. Um... (laughs) I apologize. And and no, I I appreciate it. (laughs) In fact, because I, you know, I don't feel the need to talk at length about the movie. Um, I will say this. Uh, I was excited when it was first announced because, one, it was Simon Barrett. And as you noted, like his his work as a screenwriter is really exciting. He's I've liked pretty much everything he's written, in fact. Uh, so the idea of him actually writing and directing a movie was uh, really intriguing. And also because this was a return to form. Well, it was it was a return to genre anyway uh, for Dark Castle, who had gotten lost recently in uh Action movie land. Well, I say recently. I mean, the past decade, they've gotten away from their original mission statement of doing fun, you know, higher budgeted, you know, castle-esque kinds of movies, you know, uh, loads of which I love. You know, they, uh, Dark Castle is known. If you listen to this podcast, you know who Dark Castle is. I'm not going to run through what they are. But the fact that it was announced that Seance was coming up as a Dark Castle film, and then we had Orphan First Kill, you know, coming up, you know, I got really excited about the possibility of a Dark Castle resurgence. And, you know, just for the hell of it, the other night, I rewatched Orphan, and then I watched Seance right after, which did Seance no favors, because Orphan <laughs> is a really exciting, nail-biting, beautifully realized, like, on a writing level and a technical level. But, you know, the, the characters you care about, they're well-defined, all of them. Uh, you know, it, it's super intense all the way throughout. I mean, that movie puts the screws to you as a viewer in a wonderful way. But on top of that, even though it's a quote unquote smaller movie, you know, the bulk of the action in the film is relegated to a single location. It is just a drop dead, beautiful film because of how it's shot. And so to follow that up with what I was hoping would be the return of dark castle with a movie that is very drab and flat and, you know, weirdly overly reliant on a fucking fisheye lens. Like, it it looked like... And I hate to say this, because the people behind the movie are... They know better. Like, they've, they've done, you know, work outside of this. I, I won't get into bashing specific people. All I'm going to say is, is that this movie, for being RLJE and a Shutter, you know, original that's going to pop up there at some point... To carry Dark Castle's name, it's a shock to me that this movie looked like a student production more often than not. And on top of that, Barrett is a good writer who's a deft hand at crafting characters who have depth. But not for his own directorial debut, which I don't understand. I... The plot itself and what he's trying to do with it in the first hour, I like that He's trying to tackle one genre in the first hour. He's trying to make you think. There's a little bit of sleight of hand with the story that I think a more seasoned director would have had a ball with. You know, I think pulling that, uh, you know, 
I see. I think pulling that rug out from under audiences' feet in that last fifteen or twenty minutes, it already is kind of great. Because as much as I dislike the first hour of the movie, I think the final act is gangbusters. Oh yeah. But you know, you could have made the important thing is making that first hour work right, leading up to that moment. And right. the movie surely does not do that. It, you know, none of the characters they. Like you said, they're archetypal. Like we don't really get to know them. There are no shadings to them. They 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 fill the roles that we expect to see in you know movies like this. There's the bitchy queen bee. There's the brain. There's the you know the 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 kind of soldier asshole type. You know within the uh, the group of girls. You know uh, there's the outsider, the new girl. There's the uh, sympathetic you know, friend who's kind of an outcast and sees, you know, it's all the same shit we've seen. And so there, to me, there was an expectation in the first five or 10 minutes that, Oh, okay. So he's bringing to the fore all of these archetypes and he's going to do a spin on them. He's going to do something really interesting with them. And he doesn't, not only does he not do anything interesting with them, he doesn't even fulfill the bare minimum to make those characters interesting at all. Um, which is just kind of astonishing to me. Like it's such a, a, a misfire to me. It's such a dull damn dud uh, that it was borderline kind of shocking to me, if I'm being honest. And I hate to sound so negative, but I'm being honest here. Like it's, yeah, I was rooting yeah. for this movie and ultimately I can't say, look, listeners out there, I apologize, but I, I, I can't say that this movie is worth your time. If you have a spare 90 minutes and you want to, I would almost tell them to skip to the ending and watch that. But the thing is that you do have to have what what precious little investment there is in the first hour to make that final 15 or 20 minutes work. But, you know, ultimately, I can't even say that. I, I can't even say it's worth your 85 or 90 minutes. And that's. A really a shame and on a couple of different levels i like i said i like barrett's work i wish him the best uh, hopefully if he continues directing you know maybe he will have learned you know uh, uh from his mistakes on this movie and maybe he'll come back you know uh, roaring to life with his next movie and it's going to be something amazing or maybe he's going to write so many more <laughs> movies and they're going to be amazing i hope that's the case in any case i hope the next dark castle movie in this Fingers crossed, Dark Castle Resurgence, you know, Orphan First Kill. I hope it's better than this. I really do. Yeah, I agree. Wait for Sans to hit Shutter and watch it on Shutter. It's it would be a fine Shutter watch. Um, I would not recommend I paying for it. I I bought it on Vudu, so I own the damn thing. Um, but that's <laughs> just how I am. Uh, but yeah, it's yeah. It it is what it is, but Simon Barrett. I mean, he, his track record is still incredibly strong. Um, I will still watch whatever he does next. This was Same a misstep. Here. I'm Same disappointed here. in it, but you know, that happens sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> All right, Paul. We are over an hour and a quarter into this talk, man. Let's go ahead and dive into some hammer. What do you say? Probably a good idea. <laughs> good idea, sir. <laughs> Anyone's still listening to us? Yeah, <laughs> tuned no, in it... for a hammer movie. <laughs> Maybe I should put that in the show notes. Be like, you know, if you just want to listen to Hammer, you it know, something it. related yeah. to Hammer, you know, in this Hammer podcast, then uh, yeah, just skip to eighty minutes in. 
Okay, folks out there, if you've listened to this podcast before, you know what to do. But if you haven't, I'm going to go ahead and run through it quickly. Whatever media you're watching, our movie this week, uh, which is Frankenstein Must Be Destroyed, go ahead and cue it up to the very first frame. It's going to be black, and the very next frame is going to be the uh, the logo in, logo in red. I think it's Warner Brothers 7 Arts or something like that. Uh, I am watching the Warner Brothers Blu-ray. Maybe you have the DVD, maybe you have VHS, but in any case, let's all get to that first frame. I'm going to do a countdown, and we're going to press play together, folks. Okay, everybody ready? Paul, you ready? I'm ready. Listeners, ready? Okay, here in five, four, three, two, one, and play. All right, Warner Brothers Seven Arts presents. I like the W Seven Shield. Looks like a superhero. Something a superhero would have on his chest. Even better is the creepy gothic writing that says a Hammer Film production. Well, if there's and we've talked about this before, but if there's one thing Hammer really does well. It's font. Oh hell yeah! <laughs> they they give great font. Um, you know, honestly, you you will win points with me as a filmmaker if you even attempt to do anything like the fonts, like the title cards that Hammer would do back in the day. Because, uh, you know, I, the new Castle Freak opened this way. Big, gothic red letters. Oh, with I still haven't seen episode. that. I still yeah. haven't seen that. It, I saw the it's on Blu-ray with a bunch of special features and I've almost bought it like five times. I need to buy it. I need to buy it. Should because, I buy it? Yeah. Just yeah, just tell it. me to buy it. I'll buy just it buy, tomorrow. I'll just okay, buy the damn thing. All right. I need to point something out here. I don't know if this is a can or a hat box or what the hell it is. I have watched these damn movies. I can't tell you how many times, but it was doing a little bit of research for this for our talk tonight. And uh, there was this stray comment in a book that I was looking at that pointed out that – now, keep in mind, listeners out there – this movie follows on from Frankenstein Created Woman, right? That was the fourth Frankenstein movie. This is the fifth. And yet, there's no great continuity between all these movies. There are little bits and pieces that allow you to imagine that they're all connected. But for the most part, they're standalone. So for all of these years, having watched these movies over and over, I just took it for granted that this movie is just a brand new tale. And that's that. We open with who we will find out to be Frankenstein in a weird mask stalking the streets here with a scythe and a, well, kind of a can or a hat box or something similar. And he cuts off a head, he pops it into the hat box and off he goes on his merry way. Did not even occur to me that these moments immediately follow up the final moments of Frankenstein created woman which was a movie where Frankenstein resurrected a young woman named Christina, infused her with the soul of her dead lover, and then she goes off on her merry way to uh, have her revenge against all of the evil rich assholes who led to her and her boyfriend's demise by cutting off their heads whilst carrying her boyfriend's head around in a hat box. So it's almost as though the opening of this movie is saying that Frankenstein has adopted his own creation's methods of murder and toting around an item that he needs, specifically a head and a little carrier as such. I love that. I It cannot be a mistake. Even though I had never considered that before, I, it obviously has to be that, right? It has to be a nod to that. I, I would agree. And I think, again, and we've talked about this before, but I definitely think that there is a underlying continuity 
that exists with the character specifically where he retains the memories of these past movies, even if the narratives don't support that. So it's sort of like he's lived all of those lives and wherever he is at the beginning of the next film has those memories sort of as the backbone of the decisions he's making now. So I think that's that's a really good way to carry us into the sort of dark, angry, bitter movie that this is. Yeah. But it's we should talk about sort of its its place in the franchise just to begin with and and this sort of Jack the Ripper esque opening. Um he so we this is movie five, right? We've had curse we've had revenge um evil and uh created woman and in created woman he was almost the most i don't want to say empathetic but the most sort of personable and interested in other people's well-being uh than he had been in in previous films yeah he you know i mean we've talked about this we've talked about this with every frankenstein installment but i think it it bears repeating, you know, when it comes to talking about these movies. Sure, Frankenstein has one hell of an arc throughout the course of all these movies, covering, you know, spanning several years in the man's life. You know, when we meet him in The Curse of Frankenstein as a young man, he is obviously driven, but he is very cold and calculating. Right. And, uh, you know, if you stand in the way of his designs, you know, his uh, his goals, as it were, um, it doesn't mean anything to him to kill you or have you killed, as it were. Um, you know, by the time you get to... Re- he's very much that film's villain, even for being its lead character. Arguably, its lead character. Um, when you get to the revenge of Frankenstein, he's still a villain, but he's so charming and darkly humorous, you want to side with him as an audience member. You know, you're you're kind of over his shoulder in that one. By the time you get the evil of Frankenstein, the the attempted reboot, he's borderline that film's hero. You know, he's not necessarily yeah. doing anything heroic, but he he surely is our protagonist in that. By the time you get to uh, Frankenstein created woman, like you said, I think he is empathetic. I think you know, I think he is a good man in that movie. He's somebody who is learned from his mistakes in the past. He is somebody who has a bigger heart than he once did. And he's somebody who, who genuinely tries to make his small corner of the world, a better place, even while pursuing his own goals. And the horrible irony of that movie is that by the time he gets to that place as a person is also the moment that he is so roundly punished by the universe for it. Like yeah. he, you, you can feel almost, you know, this, this cosmic comeuppance that he gets in those final moments of the fourth movie, where even though he tried to be a good man, even though he tried to do a good thing, it all ends terribly for him. And so now we reach the fifth film. This is how I make sense of these anyway. Now we reach the fifth film and he is bitter and angry yeah. and yep. fuck humanity. I'm not going to help anybody else. It's back to the drawing board. I'm going to get back to basics and who I was when I first started. He's getting older. He hasn't accomplished what he's wanted to yet. And his heart has shrunk back to its, uh, its original factory settings to me. And I think that's kind of what bears out like his characterization in this movie. Now that's how I make it work. 
in fact, you know, this movie, I, I think Frankenstein is meaner. I think he's harder in this movie because this is simply a harder movie for Hammer. And, uh, and for Frankenstein, you know, really, I, in terms of violence, but, you know, as a movie, there's also a grimness. There's a grit to it. And this was, this was the period where Hammer was really starting to battle with their contemporaries in the marketplace. Oh, yeah. They had, they had yeah. Amicus, who was really giving them a run for their money by essentially doing a Hammer riff. You know, that, eh, well, that's reductive, but you know what I mean. You know, um, uh, there was Tygen, who was doing some really interesting stuff uh, that was also a little bit in the Hammery vein at times. And, uh, you know, even American independent horror had just awakened with Night of the Living Dead. And, uh, I mean, hell, there were other Frankenstein movies that were being made at the time, obviously capitalizing to some extent on Hammer's success with that title. So here we have a film that feels a little meaner, sure, but given the context, maybe it feels a little more desperate as well. You can feel Hammer really trying to keep up with their contemporaries. And it's almost as though the way they thought they could do that was by infusing this otherwise up until this point, classy series with, you know, more violence and more, uh, uh, dodgy content, which we'll get to later on in this talk. I'm yeah. certain of it, but, um, but yeah, no, to me, it kind of, even though I liked the movie, I, I actually quite like the movie. There, there is a whiff of desperation about it in in seeing Hammer flail about to try and keep up with uh, with the times, as it were. Yeah, no, I mean, I totally agree, and I think it's indicative of a couple things. I think, yeah, in the last film, it dealt with the nature of the soul, um, and there's no, and I think that's why it sort of bears more empathy. Um, and when he realized that the human soul was sort of like ultimately not something that he could control or maintain or, you know, keep pure, there's, there's sort of an anger that arises within him and a pain that he doesn't know how to handle. Um, especially in the ending of that film where he just sort of walks away defeated. Like there's, there's very real pain in his eyes and and frankenstein as sort of a borderline sociopathic character i don't think he knows what pain is or really how to handle it uh he was never sort of taught that and and never had to deal with it so i think his reaction to it is well fuck everybody like you said i'm just gonna do what i'm gonna do and i'm, I'm gonna use any means necessary and i'm gonna stop trying to form any sort of meaningful relationships because in all of those other films, he always has people helping him that respect him, that he actually in his own way cultivates a relationship with. In this movie, he blackmails people to help him and essentially ruins their lives in the process. So it's a completely different, you know, across the board, everyone that's interacting with this character in this movie is getting completely destroyed in every sense of the word. Um, and it's mean. It's a mean movie. And like you said, Hammer Hammer was entering into its final years. The writing was on the wall at this point. They had had some successes uh, in the late 60s, but there wasn't much of a future in what it was they were peddling. And they were trying to appease their producers. They were trying to make something that would be marketable against like what was, what was starting to become grindhouse horror. So I think that's where the cruelty, the blatant overt cruelty comes in. 
but this is a movie that was directed by Terrence Fisher. So there's still this sort of, this movie feels really torn to me creatively. Like I, I can kind of tell that there's a, a creative voice behind it. That's still trying to tell a story about good pulling against evil and the nature of man and, and what evil acts might, you know, bring upon somebody. But there's also a just nihilistic cruelty to it that that is not fitting, you know, amongst Terrence Fisher's other work that feels more indicative of the nature of the genre at the time. Um, And those two things don't exactly work super well together for me. And 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 as a result, I think sometimes the movie feels a bit disjointed. Yeah, I can, I can, I can see that. I, you know, I, to me, the movie works well as a piece, certainly. Like I, you know, it's funny what you were saying, just to go back to this for a moment, like the young couple here, you know, the way he ultimately drags them in and blackmails them, you know, it's circumstantial initially, you know, he comes across the box of cocaine that the young man had spirited away, you know, sure. But you also get the feeling, too, that, like, you know, like you said, like, when it comes to the relationships that Frankenstein cultivates throughout the course of, you know, all these various movies, he is shown to be a master manipulator. He knows when to be warm. He knows when to, uh, to, to sort of, uh, uh, you know, create friends out of the people. And, you know, ultimately that... In the earlier movies, that's, you know, in service of his work, and he's going to use them in such a way. But he's never, you know, I don't think he ever attempts to actively destroy anyone. And to me, it's really interesting that, you know, following the events of Frankenstein Created Woman, where he did genuinely, I think, care about the people involved, and it it wound up for him the way it did, by the time you get here, he gives himself, like, no room to... Uh, um, uh, uh, befriend these people that he needs. You know, he could easily approach the young man here and say, uh, you know, present himself as a would-be mentor, as he has in the past. And it's like he's not even giving himself the opportunity to care about them. Like, Mm -hmm. he, he has to blackmail them. He has to keep them at arm's length. It's almost like he's protecting himself emotionally by being such a bastard to them. Yeah. Yeah, and... I I think that I like this scene as sort of a a catalyst for the things he does in the house. Like, and I like that he's unable to abide what these strangers are saying. You know, I, I, I love, there's a line coming up that I, I wrote down when I was watching it um, where he sort of interjects uh, and they're kind of like, Oh, you know, he says something like, Oh, you're doctors. Cause they're talking about, you know, his field. And they're like, oh no, we're not doctors. And he's like, oh, I beg your pardon. I thought you knew what you were talking about. <laughs> like, like he said he just he's so like his his sarcasm and um just kind of that that wry wit that bleeds through and some of which has come through in the other films. You know, Frankenstein created a woman had some pretty funny situations where he was sort of talking down to people in the courtroom and stuff like that, that, that Frankenstein kind of comes alive here, but partially because he's talking to a bunch of like 
old white men blowhard type characters that we're just sort of prone to think, well, they're probably aristocratic jerks anyway. So it's still fun to see him put people in their place um, and kind of makes you like him a little bit. Um, but well, up until this point, you know, I mean, obviously we did witness the murder at the very beginning, but even still, right. this is, this is still the Frankenstein that we know up until this mm-hmm. point, like he hasn't shown himself, by the way, I just want to say the guy on the right here smoking the pipe, poor bastard, whoever they got to dub him and however they went about dubbing him, this is maybe the worst instance of dubbing <laughs> any character has ever had in the history of hammer. And that's saying something. Hammer loved to just randomly dub people. And I don't, for the life of me, understand why half the time. I want to think that they had like a big wheel that they would, (laughs) they would attach like the, you know, maybe not the stars, but everyone else, they just stuck pieces of tape with names scribbled on them on the wheel and they spun it and wherever it landed, sorry about your luck actor or actress. I I always felt like from the stories I heard, it was Carreras and him just being really, really finicky about how a person sounded in a movie. Like, it, it felt like every story I ever read was sort of, uh, Carreras watched the movie and just didn't like how that girl sounded. Or didn't think she sounded adult enough. Or didn't think she sounded this way. Or feminine enough. Or masculine enough. Or whatever. And he would just willy-nilly you know, have people redubbed and it it felt oftentimes like it came from the producers rather than the actual director or, you know, sound designers or anything like that. Can I point out just a really weird editing moment that happened at the top of this scene when Carl pulled off his coat, obviously the cocaine dropped, you know, Anna answers at the door and he steps in or he gives her a quick kiss and steps in then there's this fade, like there's been a passage of time, right? Mm-hmm. Except the fade is to him closing the door and he and Anna walking on into the room. It's the weirdest thing. Like it could have just been a cut, but they decided to do like this slow, like almost time lapse fade. And it's just, I don't know, it's a bizarre thing. Maybe it's a bizarre thing to even note, but it's a bizarre thing, I think, to. <laughs> to have been placed there i don't know well, we uh... are we are coming towards the end of fisher's run um he had just recovered from multiple vehicle accidents um <laughs> after being dr- from from what i understand fisher was not at the top of his game at this point um i think the movie's really competently made i think it's very beautiful like i love the lighting in this scene um it of course is... but do you think that it looks like a Terrence Fisher movie or are one of the notes that I made, and I'm curious to get your opinion about this, but compared to what we've seen from both directors before, this yeah. is a Terrence Fisher movie. Certainly it looks like a Freddie Francis film. Yeah, it, it doesn't. I, I was thinking that last night that it just doesn't have that Fisher feel, which is funny because Fisher talks about this like it's one of his favorite movies, or talked about this like it was one of his favorite movies. Like, he he held this movie up as one of the best things he thinks he made, or thought he made. And I, I thought that was really interesting, um, given the controversy around some of the production things. 
and just where he was at as a filmmaker when this was when this was made. But he was working regularly at this point. I mean, he was making a movie a year for Hammer. Um, you know, I, re- I read a couple things where people were like, oh, he had been away for a while. I was like, no, he hadn't. He just made Devil Rides Out <laughs> before that. <laughs> The year well, before yeah. that, he made Created <laughs> Woman. The year before that, he made Prince of Dark. I mean, he was making a movie a year. He only he, missed out on uh, Dracula's Risen from the Grave. Right, I... right. He took he he had to take a break because of the accident, but that was still only a year separated. Devil Rides Out and Frankenstein Must Be Destroyed. So it wasn't that much time. You know, it is like, curious that we that we have gotten, and I think you and I noted this uh, during Created Woman that it was the last movie shot at Bray the last Frankenstein, but this is the first Frankenstein not shot at Bray. It was shot at yeah, Elstree. Yeah, I think that's part of it. I, I do feel like the look and feel being different is tied into the fact that it wasn't made at Bray. I but, can see that. I mean, and this Arthur was, uh... Grant... Oh, sorry, go ahead. No, you're fine. I was just going to say quickly that, you know, I... in some of the reading that I did, which, by the way, I'll go ahead and note up here at the top, I, uh, I was referring to Oh, in advance of this chat, I skipped through uh, the Hammer story, which is excellent, and also uh, Bruce G. Hallenbeck's like indispensable uh, Hammer Frankenstein from British cult cinema. Listeners out there, if you have even a passing interest in this franchise, definitely pick that book up. It's excellent. But um, they did note that even though this wasn't shot at Bray, it was shot at Elstree, and Paul, I would tend to agree with you. I think that does have some influence on the uh, film's visual palette. Bernard Robinson does still do an amazing job with the art direction in this film. And in fact, this was his last go with hammer. Mm. So I think he went out on kind of a high note. Oh yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, it's, it's a beautiful movie. Um, so this scene, I, I want to I I think this scene is one of the scenes that really initially, makes you start to realize that the Frankenstein of this film is a very different character because there's this sort of like horrific position. He puts Veronica Carlson's character who uh, Veronica Carlson is, is great in this movie. Um, She, I don't know. I think she embodies that character really well and just, yeah, I like her a lot. I agree. Um, But uh, it's such a horrible scene. It's very awkward it's it's painful to watch because you you're you're seeing this character that isn't doesn't have a, a cruel bone in her body kicking these people out of her house and having to endure their ridicule uh and slander and meanwhile you know Frankenstein presides over the whole thing sort of smugly and he it's it's a level of dickishness <laughs> that we know he's capable of, but we're not used to seeing him inflict so quickly in a movie. Usually the first like act and a half is Frankenstein being very like cordial and winning people over. You know, we, we, we're, we're kind of seeing the, the aristocrat in him come off. And this one is just straight to business, um, straight to final act Frankenstein, where he's just unhinged and ready to do what needs to be done. Um, and it, there's something about that that makes it, I don't know. I like the movie a lot. It sounds like I'm, 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 I'm sort of complaining about the movie, but it makes it slightly less entertaining on a fun level than some of the other ones are and puts it more squarely in the horror realm 
but it's it's sort of an unpleasant feeling because unlike some of the Grandhouse movies that I think it's attempting to compete with, this is still presented in a sort of classy up, upper crust way where you're watching it as a dramatic interpretation of the character as well as a horror film. And the drama is much less pleasant when it's laced with so much cruelty. Yeah. Yeah. No, I agree. It is, it is, you know, probably more so than any of the others, this feels like a horror film, mm-hmm. but not in a, yeah, you're right. Not in a fun way. I, even this sequence with Carl stabbing the night watchman and then realizing what he's done and realizing that he's that much deeper in and he's now a murderer and just seeing yeah. that look of pain and regret. That's not necessarily a horror movie beat, but it makes the movie feel all the more horrific. And, uh, by the way, we have on screen here Veronica Carlson. I did want to take a moment to say, like, as you noted, she obviously, like, Veronica Carlson is a beautiful woman. And sure. she definitely, like, serves, I'm sure, what the the uh, intention was for, you know, the higher-ups who hired her. You know, not just for this, but Dracula's Risen from the Grave and then later on the other, uh, you know, like, horror Frankenstein. But... Uh, Beyond the fact that she's beautiful, beyond the fact that she definitely serves hammer glamour, you know, as it were, in this movie, her performance is fantastic in this movie. Like, there is so much. Like, her character goes through so much in this film, and she plays it all, like, she doesn't have any monologues. We never have a moment where we sit down with the character and she explains what her feelings on all this terrible shit that she's going through is she's able to convey it all with these very subtle looks at times. And we see like, to me, I think, and all respect to Peter Cushing, who you know, I love hers is the best performance in the film. Yeah, I would agree. I I, I think, um, well, Cushing in this movie, I don't know. I, there's something about it where I, I can tell that it doesn't jive with, and this is me sort of reading into the subtext of the film and the making of the movie and not necessarily anything that I'm basing on, you know, any real evidence that I have other than that. But it it feels like he might be at odds with the direction they're taking the character in this one. Um, And not just because of the scene that's coming up. Um, You know, there's a lot of stuff when he's playing such an such a vindictive asshole like that for the whole movie with no with very few moments of reprieve there's there's a little bit more of a veil between him and the character than i think is typically there there's less i guess maybe the word is nuance there's less nuance to this performance than is often the case with frankenstein films Whereas I think Veronica Carlson's character is incredibly nuanced because she often has to play multiple roles, um, you know, appear to be a certain way around certain people. But we also get to see a wide range of emotions from her. Uh, you know, later in the film, we see like over the top reactions and and she sells every moment incredibly well. And and if anything, the biggest problem with Veronica Carlson's character is she kind of eclipses Simon Ward. <laughs> <laughs> um, Cause he is, 
what he's doing in this movie isn't bad by any means, but it it doesn't match his partner. No, not at all. And, you know, and I can't say that that's down to the writing either. Like his performance is a bit thin, you know, mm-hmm. it's um, and like you said, I mean, it might have been perfectly adequate if not for the fact that he was paired with an actress who again, I think knocks it out of the park in this film. Um, you know, it's curious. We've often talked about, you know, these Hammer movies on this podcast. You know, a lot of times it's a bit of a mixed bag uh, with this franchise, as it were, as to whether or not, you know, the the uh, women in these films have any sort of agency whatsoever. And I think what's curious about this movie is that you have a character who has no agency, but the point of the movie is that, that it's being stripped from her, that it's being taken from right. her. And we still get a three-dimensional character in, you know, in that stead, you know, who, who, you know, it's kind of heartbreaking in a way to watch this young woman who's obviously, you know, uh, vibrant and happy in her first moments when we meet her, like to see her slowly get beaten down over the course of the movie. And maybe that's the biggest difference too, you know, aside from performance between, um, Anna and Carl is the fact that we kind of expect that arc for Carl, you know, him getting drawn into Frankenstein's orbit and being forced to play, you know, his, uh, his handyman, as it were, you know, his apprentice, uh, his gopher (laughs) in a way, you know, that's, we've seen that before, but we've never really seen, you know, the, the fallout of Frankenstein's actions, affects somebody who otherwise would be on the periphery in, in such a way before. And it's really more than anything, it's just sad. And I'm not even talking about the, and we'll get to it, the assault sequence later on, even if you remove that, which it wasn't intended to be a part of the film anyway, but even if you remove that, it would still be such a deeply sad film because of the Anna character, I think. Yeah, no, I agree. Yeah. I, I, I think that's very true. Um, and I, again, that that performance is one of the reasons the movie feels so mean spirited, because you actually care about her. So the things that Victor Frankenstein's doing feel all the more weighty and just just mean, <laughs> you know, and, and it's it's hard to get excited about that. I mean, but but once more, I it just feels like a movie that really represents uh, how incongruous what Hammer was attempting to do at that time, which is match their stuff to kind of the grindhouse mentality of of that sort of burgeoning horror entertainment. Um, they're two different things, and. I just kind of think it was a mistake for Hammer to try to make Frankenstein into a movie like that versus embracing what made them unique and making something that maybe would have felt off the beaten path, but would have at least occupied a space that served as a a foil to what was happening in mainstream horror. Yeah. And it is, you know, it's funny just doing a bit of reading about this. Like, this movie did not provide decent returns for Hammer at all. In fact, the Frankenstein uh, cycle would continue. You know, I think there is a quote uh, 
where I believe it was Carreras who had been interviewed about the possibility of Frankenstein follow-ups at this point, and he said, absolutely not. Dracula is what the kids are interested in. So there might not have been any more Frankenstein movies after this one, and what a terrible ending it would have been, I think, to this franchise. Or maybe, you know, maybe it would have been perfect, given how the movie ends. I don't know. But, um, you know, after this, they do drop uh, Peter Cushing in favor of doing a reboot with Ralph Bates, you know, the darkly humorous horror of Frankenstein. And part of me wonders, you know, as you noted about his performance, that sort of veil there, you know, I wonder if Cushing, this is pure speculation, but I wonder if Cushing (sighs) was maybe tired of the character at this point. Maybe he needed a bit of a break. You know, maybe he didn't have a connection with that character anymore. And maybe he was all too happy to let somebody else pick up the reins to that character for a while. You know, I, who knows, but I can imagine after, and again, it's not a bad performance, but I could see, I I could certainly see why, especially with what he went through on the making of this movie, you know, and uh, again, the one scene that we'll get to eventually it's coming, Paul, it's coming right at us. We'll, we'll get there eventually. (laughs) We're going to have to talk about it at some point. Uh, But, you know, I can almost see him being, you know, quite finished with, playing Frankenstein after this movie, you know, uh, now eventually we do get a final film with him after the reboot kind of failed too. And people wanted Cushing back in the role. Um, but you know, e- even for all of that though, I still think this is a damn good film. Yeah, no, I, I mean, even the, my least favorite Frankenstein, you know, uh, movie, from hammer is still better than most other movies. (laughs) Um, But I I do think that this one has some of the things that sort of maybe like irk me the most or push me away, keep me at arm's length from it the most. It's definitely the one I feel the most disconnected from. Um. Even and I kind of wondered if that would change on a rewatch because as I was telling you, like I this was really only the second time I had ever seen it. Um, and the first time I saw it, it's a movie I like, uh, and and definitely respect, but it it was it's it's hard to watch this one after Frankenstein Created Woman. Um, it's hard to go into this and see him doing these awful things and mistreating people so blatantly uh, from start to finish with, with zero sort of, uh, you know, attempt to conceal his malice for his fellow man. (laughs) Um, After what we saw in created woman, where he was so the opposite of that. And it almost felt like he had learned and evolved from the person he was in curse but I do have to say, as a as a franchise, I like that Cur- or that that created woman stamped that out of him. Um, I think that is a an interesting idea, um, and I do think this movie handles that idea generally pretty well. Um, and there are some things that are seeded in this movie that kind of come to fruition in the final film monster from hell. Um, you know, I like seeing him sort of like sneaking into a mental institution and, and uh, you know, this whole subplot about 
a person that was his peer, uh, perhaps his equal intellectually, that figured out how to do what he always wanted to do. And this is the t- this to me is the Terrence Fisher of it all. So this character um, figured out how to do what Frankenstein wanted to do, but could never accomplish and was going to talk to Frankenstein about it, but he literally lost his mind. And this person um, had a wife, had a life, was for all intents and purposes, from what we can gather in the film, a good man. Uh, who who was not sociopathic like Frankenstein is. And I think to me, what it's saying is that no good person could do these things and remain sane. <laughs> uh, and I, and I think that's a really sort of interesting concept that feels very Terrence Fisher to me. No, I, no, I can get that. I, I totally do. I do wonder, man, you know, you and I have talked a lot about Frankenstein's arc. And, you know, you specifically mentioned that you're certain that Cushing had sort of an internal logic that allowed him to play the character in such wildly disparate ways from movie to movie, but still have it all make sense. You know, we've, even now in this movie, we have guessed at what his motivations might be and, uh, you know, where he might be emotionally and so on and so forth. Do you think the movie was intended, not just this movie, let's say all of the sequels, you know, but especially the back half of them. Do you think those movies were intended to invite that sort of participation on behalf of the audience? You know, do, do the movies draw us in and hope that we're going to make those connections for ourselves? Or do you think they really were just knocking these things out that there weren't those connections there in the first place and the movies maybe don't have quite the depth that we as audience members bring to them ourselves. That's a good question. I, I, I don't. So my opinion is I don't think hammer as a studio necessarily cared or not cared, but like made an effort to make that make sense or intended for that to make a lot of sense other than, uh, uh, revenge i think revenge was definitely intended to carry on the story regardless of its inconsistencies with the plot i think it's presented like a direct sequel for you know i mean for god's sakes you begin with him walking to the guillotine like it is it is a sequel (laughs) um it's the only one that really is um but other than that movie I do think the movies that Terrence Fisher made with Cushing specifically, I mean, which he made everything except for evil, I guess. Um, but I do think with when Terrence Fisher was at the helm, I imagine he was sort of in cahoots with Cushing on this. Um, because I feel like because evil, evil feels a little bit similarly to the other movies. It feels a little more disjointed from the others um uh, particularly because you can just kind of tell they're trying to sort of do the universal thing in that one um again i still think cushing brings that to the table but the movie feels less interested in that the other films though uh i i think do i i I do think that 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 the director was in on it so to speak and that there's some kind of visual and 
character through lines that I don't think would be altogether possible if Cushing was doing it entirely on his own. And some of that comes down to the fact that like, and Fisher has even talked about how he was, he encouraged Cushing to improvise a little bit and let him block his own scenes and let him bring props and sort of let him handle the, the situation, the way he wanted to handle it. Um, so I, I have to believe that they had conversations around the same stuff. And of course I'm projecting some of these things of that I wish and want to be there, but I just don't think the character would work as well as he does if, if it weren't true. Yeah, that's fair. I, I do wonder how much of that was dealt with on a scripting level. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, I, yeah. That's true. On, you know, on a script at... level, it's doubtful. Yeah. Because, you know, like, because this one, uh, Anthony Nelson Keyes came up with, like, the concept. And well, then who, who wrote it? Like, well, Bert, Tony Hines. Bert Bat or whatever. Right. Tony Hines, you know, who's written plenty of, you know, prior Hammer films. He actually began the screenplay for this film four months after the release of... Uh, created woman. Uh, oh, but okay. apparently okay. this is kind of sad. He was at the same time, he was working on a hammer co-production with uh, 20th century Fox. It was a television series called journey to the unknown, which I've never seen, but the title alone kind of sells me. Oh, apparently yeah. the experience on that show was a bad one uh, because it led to Heinz resigning from the hammer board. Uh, so at that point, Anthony Nelson keys, uh, and an assistant director named Burt Bat. They were both Hammer veterans. Together, they came up with a uh, a new storyline for the film. And Bat wrote the screenplay, but apparently it was very short. Like, it was a very thin draft, a very short draft. And so they had to continually add material to the script as they went, as they were shooting, to, uh, to make certain that they padded it out to uh, feature length. Which is crazy, considering that... The final runtime for this movie runs about 10 to 15 minutes longer than most movies of this type. Yeah, yeah. Well, and I know, like, there were certain things that were added as they went. And, like, the Thorley Walters stuff was, like, a late addition, right? Like, they shot a lot of that stuff, like, well after most of the movie had been completed. And it and it does, I mean, I love Thorley Walters. I'm always happy to see him. Um, but admittedly that stuff does kind of slow the pacing. Yeah. It does kind of make the movie, the movie kind of grinds to a halt whenever we're dealing with the inspector. Um, and it kind of feels like, you know, when they would do like TV versions and they would shoot extra shit to like make it longer for uh television syndication. Like it kind of feels like that stuff where it's like it's not super imperative to the plot. It, it's kind of just there to have a character come in and explain what's going on and reiterate things to the audience. Like it, this movie feels more bloated than than to me really any of the other Frankenstein movies. Yeah, yeah, I would agree. And yet, I, I will say, I feel as though the movie never really, uh, it never grinds to a halt, exactly, you know? But um, but yeah, it is funny to just imagine a much shorter version of this film. Maybe it would have, you know, 
maybe it would have been a little more pacey. Who knows? Yeah, well, even getting it down to 90 minutes, which isn't a huge cut, like, but but frankly, again, I think you could cut most of the police stuff out and probably end up with a 90-minute movie that would flow much better. But, I, agree. I mean, it's easy to be a, a backseat editor or whatever, but, like, <laughs> it's... I don't know. I, again, I, I don't want to come off as being like negative on this movie because I do really enjoy it. Um, and it's incredibly effective. Not is this your least favorite Frankenstein? I think it is even more um, so than horror. Yeah. I know that might be a controversial take. No, um, I, I love them all. I, I adore. I, right. Yeah. Horror, I but horror, too. I think is probably my least. It's tough. I, I it's tough because ultimately Peter Cushing in the character as that character is always going to be that, that might just give it the edge for me with horror. Um, and horror isn't a perfect movie either. Like horror is very fun. Um, and I, I am much easier. I just recorded a podcast, uh, on horror not that long ago that, uh, for dead ringers where we compared uh, curse and horror uh, with me, Nolan, and uh, Daniel Epler. And I think that conversation came out very negative around horror because, again, if you're comparing horror to Curse, <laughs> it's it's not going to look good for horror. But I do think horror is a very fun movie that I enjoy and and, and an interesting experiment that Hammer did. I think, I think it's... Here's here's what I'll say. I think horror is a more successful experiment with this idea for the time that it was made uh, than than maybe this movie is. Um, meaning, like bringing sort of the dark uh, nihilism of the genre at the time into the Frankenstein franchise. Um, I I feel is less entertaining than sort of going the more youthful comedic route, even if that comedy doesn't always jive with what's being put forth and the, the style of the movie. Um, neither are fully successful, but I do think horror maybe works a little better on the entertainment front. Having said that, I, I just like, you, I think at the end of the day, I can't in good conscience rank a Frankenstein movie that isn't starring Peter Cushing above one that is. All right, Paul, here's this fucking thing. Um, okay. <laughs> so, so, uh, however, how, 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 how to introduce this. This is the rape sequence. Um, this is a controversial sequence for any number of reasons, uh, with, within the text of the movie and the, Span of the franchise itself, it is probably the single most despicable scene that we have. Uh, it's one that fans hate. It's one that kind of uh, rails against the nature of Frankenstein as we know him. I don't care how much of a bastard he is in this film. There's nothing in any of the movies coming before this that tells us that he's capable of the act that is to follow. Uh, but on top of that, it was a sequence that was never meant to be in the screenplay. It was something that was insisted upon by James Carreras, who was apparently afraid that American distributors were uh, were going to want more sex in the film. And uh, for whatever reason, Carreras equated sex with rape, so he insisted on this sequence being put in. 
Terrence Fisher, I believe, quit the film. Uh, Cushing and Veronica... Car- this is terrible. Uh, Cushing and yeah. Veronica Carlson uh, vehemently objected to the sequence. Uh, apparently it tore the set apart for the day. Uh, somehow, some way, all three of these principles were talked back into it. Weirdly enough, I read this, I'd never known this before uh, running across this recently, Roger Moore was actually filming nearby, uh, I believe in the same studios, and he had actually popped by, he was familiar with the uh, the cast, and he actually apparently comforted both uh, Cushing and Carlson, Carlson and Cushing, um, you know, trying to give them a pep talk, as it were. Um, yeah. And eventually they... They came back and they shot it. And according to an interview that Veronica Carlson gave, I believe for Famous Monsters of Filmland, uh, she noted that after they shot the sequence, I, it, they only shot it to a point. Uh, I actually have excerpts from the script here, and I'll read it here in just a moment so you can get an idea of the, the, uh, the, the scope of what the thing was meant to be. But, but, it, but it, wasn't, point, it wasn't in the original script, right? It like, was not in the original yeah. script. The script pages were added and forced upon the production, forced upon yeah. Fisher, forced upon right. Cushing and Carlson, uh, but they were written. And so apparently they shot the sequence as written to a point. Uh, and then Fisher said, that's it. Like we're, we're not shooting anymore. That's it. That's enough. I'm done. And so what they got is what they got. And afterwards, it is said that Cushing actually cried at having had to perform that fucking sequence. Um, I have thoughts about it. I have thoughts about, one, just (laughs) within the text of the film, one, but two, you know, just to get it out of the way, the fact that they insisted on that sequence being there in the first place, after you have your actors under contract and you're trying to force them to do a movie, a fucking sequence that they never signed up for that makes them both uncomfortable, that makes your director step away. That should have been the end of it. The fact that they kept trying to push the fucking thing is utterly fucking despicable to me. And one, the the horrible irony of it all is, is that they did that just to appease what they thought would be American audiences and the American distributors. The same distributors hacked the fucking scene out for American audiences. So the entire thing was all for not. Um... I'm getting I'm getting pissed just talking about it. Um, I I think it speaks to a deep disrespect. You know, here's the thing: we love Hammer. We're doing a Hammer podcast, right? But when it comes to the upper levels of Hammer and some of the shit they pulled, like pre-selling movies with Christopher Lee's name and then browbeating him into actually fulfilling, you know, that promise when he never wanted to play Dracula in some of those later movies, but they held the fact that Jobs depended on it against him. Fuck them for that. And also for this, making two actors perform a scene that they didn't want to do, that they were uncomfortable doing, but I'm sure, and you and I have talked about this before, this was a different time. You know, this was a nine to five job. I'm sure at a certain point, both Cushing and Carlson felt that they had to roll up their sleeves as it were, and just do the damn job. But no, it shouldn't have been the case. And it's awful that they were forced to do that. So I agree with you. (laughs) Uh, This is my least favorite. I mean, that was my least favorite scene in maybe any Hammer movie. Yeah, probably. Uh, it is. It is awful. It doesn't look. I, I. I am all for a movie doing what it needs to do. I, you know, I don't want this to be a broader conversation about 
like that in movies. I, I think if if there's a thing that needs to happen in a movie to sort of land its point or progress it in in a way that's imperative to that piece of art, then you know what? Then it it's got to be there. But in this movie, it is so unnecessary across the board. It's the one time where I wish I had an edited version of the film. Yes. Like if Scream Factory ever did this film, I actually would hope they'd include vo- both versions, like the U.S. distribution version that was edited and the original. Um, I think that would actually, because I think you can remove that scene and the movie is better. Um, that it's scene absolutely. is a big, yeah, that it's seems a big better. reason why this movie ranks low for me and why I think it's as dark and, pessimistic and nihilistic as it is if they would release the um, american version of this i would only watch it and i would consider it fucking canon yeah of course um when you bring up james Carreras, so look cards on the table <laughs> and agreed i love hammer I, I i'm not trying to say things that are controversial or whatever but like james Carreras was a piece of shit <laughs> i mean that man was not a good man and he did a lot of questionable things over his career. Um, he, to me, look, I don't want to like create rumors and hearsay, but I would not be surprised to find out that he was kind of a Weinstein esque figure. Um, oh, I'm sure if, if everything I've different. read about him, yeah, I'm sure he, was, he could have been me to the hell and back. I, I oh. Mean, Fuck yes, yeah. He he was not a good man. And, well, you you can go ahead and feel Michael, comfortable laying that charge, man. Because here's the thing: if his concern was that boiling it down to its essentials, if his concern was that hey, sex sells, mm-hmm. and he immediately equates that to we should have a rape sequence, that right. alone is a big fucking problem. Yeah. Yeah, and to make Veronica Carlson do that when she hadn't signed on for it in the film. I mean, back then especially, like, your your reputation as an actress hinged on the kinds of things that you were depicted as doing in the movies. Um, that A scene like that could hurt her career as a whole. Um, even though that's a crazy thing, that it's it's unfair to put that on her. Um, and just say, well, you're under contract, you got to do it. And and that was more common practice, but it's it's easily one of the worst instances of that. And it's indicative of, of the direction, again, that Hammer was sadly going in, where they were going to make increasingly rash decisions about the movies they were making and get more frantic about what needed to happen in those movies. And Michael Carreras... <sighs> in my eyes is, is a better man than his father or was a better man than his father still made some very, very poor questionable decisions. Um, but that transition from James to Michael, um, and, and some of the rash things that they did, that's ultimately what killed this company. (laughs) You know, had they, supported some of the great things and filmmakers they had such an impressive stable of talent doing so many impressive things that they could have just gotten behind and supported that would have led to sustainability but instead it was react instead of being proactive they were reactive 
Um, and they constantly were just trying to meet studios and audience demand exactly where they were at, rather than trying to anticipate what their strengths were and what they could offer them. And that's why that they just petered out in a really sad sort of fashion. Um, Gretzky and was relied around pro- to give them a key piece of advice. That's a fact. Yeah. And, and progressively they relied more and more on stuff like that on, on, on a rape scene uh, or, you know, unnecessary nudity or sex or violence, um, despite the really interesting things some of the, the filmmakers were going to do. Like, funny enough, some of my favorite Hammer movies we've yet to discuss come in the 70s, even though that was when they were dying. Um, and and most of those movies just never got the support. I mean, hell, Legend of the Seven Golden Vampires, it took like four years before that movie came out in the US and when it finally did it was hacked to hell uh, with like random repeating sequences with a terrible title um, and and it got no it didn't get a wide release so of course it didn't make money <laughs> they didn't support it when it should have been supported um, and and that's sort of the the story of you know Hammer's latter years and it and this is a big to me, this is this is sort of one of the moments where it really begins. Yeah. All right, Paul, you ready for this? <clears throat> I'm ready. Sorry. From the I... added from the added pages, and I'm quoting directly off the page. <clears throat> she turns quickly to get the key off the bed. Frankenstein suddenly strides toward her, grabs her, forcing her onto the bed. Anna screams and tries to fight him off. He manages to get her right wrist in his right hand in a half Nelson behind her back, holding her left wrist in his left hand and kisses the top part of one of her breasts. The struggle continues with appropriate cries and noises. Mm. Frankenstein eventually succeeding, and then in parentheses here, brace yourself for this, Paul. Frankenstein eventually succeeding, (laughs) in parentheses, so far as the censor will allow. Oh, wow. Outside of parentheses, and then we continue, having torn Anna's nightdress off her shoulders at least. I'm going to read that last sentence one more time. You ready? Frankenstein eventually succeeding as so far as the censor will allow, having torn Anna's nightdress off her shoulders at least. Wow. That what is... The... Who, wrote, who wrote that? Do we know who wrote those pages? I I have no clue. I actually did a little. I was reading around trying to find out. I don't know if that was Bat. I don't know if it was Keys. I don't know if Carreras himself pinned them or. Just I'm guessing somebody. It was I, my thought is Carreras. <laughs> but but you're right. You're right when it comes to and it, like you said, we don't have to get into a larger conversation. But you're right when it comes to that type of content. So far as it serves the story, and that's what the movie's about. That's fine. That's not what this was. No, like this was pure yeah. exploitation in a movie that should. It just it's it's. Friggin' terrible, but, you know, regardless of the production side of it, it, it is a part of the movie. It is a part of the, the, the text that we have here. And as such, you know, watching it again, I, I don't know. One, you said it would be a stronger movie without that sequence. I agree with you. I read in that same interview with Veronica Carlson, she noted that she thought that her performance suffered in the long run because there are sequences that she shot before that, 
that chronologically appear after that in the film. And, you know, she had this fear that she would be, you know, she would appear to be a terrible actress because she hadn't played that history. She hadn't played that moment in other scenes with Cushing that come later in the story. Now, here's the thing. I would argue that they still play quite well. I think they play, instead of a woman who's been traumatized and is letting the world know it, like, obviously, as an actress, she is playing a distrust of Frankenstein because of everything else that's happened. Not that, right? But what it comes off as is a woman who is hiding that horrible secret because she doesn't want her husband to know Maybe out of shame, maybe out of the fact that her husband or her fiance, as it were, you know, even knowing that this happened would possibly precipitate a fight between the two men. And maybe she was afraid that her, you know, her guy wouldn't come out on top. Maybe she's trying to protect him in that way. But to me, it can still be read in her performance, even though it wasn't intended to be that way, that that happened and she's holding that within her. I think it still works. I don't think she comes off any poorer in the movie because, again, I think hers is the best performance in the movie. Now, we had had, I think, um, when we did Evil of Frankenstein, we had uh, Michael Verratti on. And, you know, we had discussed the possibility that his uh, uh, associates, his, uh, you know, the, the men that he was mentoring, his assistants... You know, there it could be read that, you know, uh, um, uh, they might very well have been lovers, especially when you get the evil of Frankenstein. It could be read that way. But equally, you know, I think it was noted in the same conversation that Frankenstein could be read as nearly asexual throughout yeah. most of the films in this series. And I think, you know, if you remove that scene in this movie or actually, you know what, the hell with it. Keep the scene in. Consider the scene. He could be considered asexual even as well. That can be true here as well. Maybe that assault is merely a show of power. It's kind of a power. Well, that's right? that's how I. I mean, in if it's going to be in the movie, and I have to deal with it, <laughs> uh, the only possible way I can see it making sense is he just wanted to exert power over her in the most vile way he could imagine, like he's just reveling in the fact that he controls these two people. And in a lot of ways, he's, he's staking claim over something that he sees as belonging to Carl. Right. Like that's ultimately what it boils down to is again, this is horrible and I don't think the movie needs it, but I think if you're going to try to contextualize it in the plot, it's, you know, I control these two people um, you know, since I'm sort of Dickensian about all of this, like Veronica Carlson's Anna character belongs to Dr. Carl. I'm going to take what's his and make it mine. Um, and he doesn't even know. And that sort of cuckolding is something that he is relishing in. Um, and then Veronica Carlson's character knows again, given the time that this is taking place during knows that her place is to internalize that and have it be her burden to bear because her poor husband shouldn't have to suffer that uh, injustice, which is such a fucked up way of viewing things and would be really a really interesting thing maybe to explore had the movie actually explored it at all, but it doesn't. (laughs) Instead, it just moves on from it and it's kind of a non-issue for the remainder of the film. 
um, regardless of it being the 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 most horrific thing that Frankenstein does. Um, but I I do agree that that Carlson's performance still works because it just feels like she's internalizing it, um, which is upsetting on a whole other level. Oh, know? totally. She, yeah, she appears to be traumatized, but not able to do anything about it. Not even considering that yeah. she might be able to do something about it. Um, I do have another thought regarding that scene, but we just passed the sequence that I think is a standout in this movie where the, uh, yeah. the water break and the, um, the, uh, the, 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 uh, the corpse <laughs> sort of, uh, rising up and she very quickly has to spirit the body away, uh, which I think is amazing. From uh, Hammer Frankenstein, there's this anecdote, which is, well, I'll read it and you tell me what you think. <clears throat> and I'm quoting here. In an interview with Al Taylor for Little Shop of Horrors, Carlson shares one of her anecdotes about the production. Uh, quote again. I had to haul a man out of a grave when the main water pipe burst in my back garden. Well, they rigged this up with a fire brigade. They had a hose that would fire the water 30 feet into the air in the studio, and it looked ice cold like it was straight from the North Pole. Two days were spent shooting this particular scene. The following day, we were doing the next scene, so they had to make me wet again. I came onto the set bone dry, hair beautifully done, makeup perfect, and up came props with a watering can. He said, quote, I'm sorry, Veronica. And I might add, I didn't detect a note of regret in his voice, but I must use cold water because if I use warm water, that would cool on you. When they add more cold water later, you might catch pneumonia. I didn't believe him, but I let him do it. I stood there while he watered me as if I were a flower in a garden. I could feel this cold water run down my face, into my eyes, down my neck, under the collar of my dress, down my back, down the front of it, squeezed between the layers of my clothing. I shudder now when I think of it. It was a dreadful purgatory. I was so chilled after doing that scene that they gave me brandy. But that didn't do any good. I couldn't talk because I was shivering so hard that my teeth were chattering. I must have presented a blurred image to everybody. They took me off to Roger Moore's dressing room, which sounds fantastic, except he wasn't there. The room had a bathtub, an old-fashioned white one. I ran myself a bath, starting cold, and gradually worked the temperature up to warm, then tepid, and in half an hour, I worked it up to scalding. I just lay in the tub with the water up to my neck, the brandy at my elbow, my fingers and toes tingling, waiting for the heat to seep into my backbone. I don't know where it, my backbone, had gone. I was so cold. But that bath made all that cold worth it. This, again, <laughs> to me, paints a picture of these productions and maybe how women were treated on them that is just, uh, well, it's disheartening, to say the very least. You know, I, yeah. I, yeah. I don't buy... The, 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 the Mr. Uh, water, you know, I don't buy that the AD needed to pour ice cold water on a woman to prevent her from getting sick. I doubt that was the reasoning. You know what I mean? Um, it just, it's, it's icky and it's fucked up and it, it's always interesting to get a window back into times like this and to see how people are treated on sets, you know, like, you know, there is that quote, you know, Hitchcock referring to actors as cattle and, you know, it's a laugh, but then you hear about some of the stories and some of the stuff that went on these sets, and surely enough, it does sound as though people are treated like animals more often than not. Yeah, I think um, you're right. Yeah, it's it's horrible, and 
and and the other thing is that was not exclusive to Hammer. <laughs> no, oh lord. No. Um, and it's it's a a reality. As film lovers, we sort of have to accept that the history of cinema is painted with some awful injustices um, across the board uh, from, I mean, gosh, a multitude of things. And, and, and chief among them is the role of women in, you know, in movies as well as behind the, behind the scenes uh, above and below the line, how they were, treated how they were misused um and certainly with the hammer glamour stuff the you know women that were a part of that scene did what they felt they had to do and what they were directed to do um and it's amazing to me that even given that we have such amazing performances and a lot of these women later in life, when they reflect back on those times, still think very fondly of them because of a lot of the people involved. Um, so, you know, when Veronica Carlson talks about her co-stars and talks about Terrence Fisher, um, she says nothing but amazing things. And you and I get the impression that 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 there's honesty there. I think that I don't think they would take time out of their days now to wax on sort of poetically about their times with these people if they were awful people. So what I like to take sort of solace in is that the true creative visionaries that were involved were good people for the most part. And despite maybe some of the circumstances under which these scenes were being shot or the producers that were there, um, they were guided by hands that had the right ideas or their hearts were in the right place, at least um, when it comes to hammer and, and sort of the familial way that the sets sort of coalesced, you know, with, with the crew and, and the stable of people that tend to recur on these sets. Yeah. Um, so going back to that sequence one last time, just because this is something that occurred to me, weirdly enough, only on this watch, I, I don't think that I've ever considered this before, and I'm happy to be uh, uh, scoffed at for it, but, you know, we talking about Frankenstein being nearly asexual, like not interested in sex, like he has his pursuits and that's it. That's his primary concern. And as such, you know, his assault on Anna is... Uh, merely just, you know, uh, a play for power over her, right? But mm -hmm. when we consider the affair in The Curse of Frankenstein, like, that was not for power. Like, that was obviously him having a dalliance with a woman that he was actually attracted to as opposed to the woman he was uh, engaged to, right? So I don't buy in the scope of the series that he was asexual completely. Uh, I think it mattered less to him than most other things, sure. But something occurred to me on this watch, and it's icky, uh, so please bear with me, uh, you and audience members. In the last film, Frankenstein uh, revives Christina, a brunette with a birthmark on her face. And he... <laughs> 
he revives her and he transfers Hans, her boyfriend's soul into her. And they go off and, uh, you know, commit these acts of revenge. Right. But not only does he revive her body, he, 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 he repairs the birthmark on her face. He gives her blonde hair. And the result, once he's dressed her, once he's brought her back to life, you know, revealing Susan Denberg's beauty, the, the, the resulting creature of his is this kind of buxom blonde. Now, maybe he created her in such ways to act as a very alluring spider to uh, sort of trap her would-be victims. You know, I could totally buy that. But is there not a reading that maybe he just really likes bucks and blondes and possibly, and this is icky, that in considering Anna, that preference might play into his attack. Might it not be sheer lust that motivates him in that sequence, do you think? Possibly. I I mean, there, there's not a ton of evidence in the series other than and i would even say in the first movie his affair with the maid could still be viewed as a power play i mean certainly there's like a bodily biological biological function of pleasure that comes out of that but i i think the way the flippant way in which he treats her and that affair in general is more about like here's this woman who's subservient to me, and this is a way to sort of exert maximum power over her. Um, plays similarly just as well as as a lust sort of desire piece or fulfilling that kind of lust that he has. Well, yeah, I think, I think that's it. I think it's lust. I mean, you know, he's... We've talked about him being a sociopath. I don't think love enters the equation, but lust almost certainly does. Right, but in in created woman, um, you know, making her a blonde. I mean, certainly, like one could argue that. Well, then that speaks to his preference for what he's attracted to, which, which, sure, could certainly be true. But I, I do think that 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 plays more into the, the spider argument, given what that character is designed to do. Um, then, especially because he never shows any sort of like outward attract like physical attraction or desire for her no 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 he does i don't mean in the sense i don't think he created her to if anything he's rather paternal with her right yes for sure if he designed a spider to trap all those men what he gave them is his idea of beauty his idea of what would be most sexually attractive and so again when he sees anna for the first time you know i'm wondering if you know i mean that that triggered something certainly you could yeah you could make an argument for it um i don't know that i want to it's just something that i i I, (laughs) well again given that it was like such a late addition but um yeah you know, going going towards one thing we haven't really talked about is the whole like plot line with um, with Brant and Brant's wife and sort of his manipulation of her. Um, the second couple that he destroys. Yeah, and and again, that's so the Brant couple is really where the Terrence Fisher element enters in for me, because here we have sort of the 
parallel version of Frankenstein, like what he might have been able to be um, were he not sociopathic. Um, and the consequences of exploring the things that he's exploring as a good person. Um, I will say I do kind of wish uh, that uh, Ella Brandt had been played by Barbara Shelley. Because <laughs> I kind of feel like it would be a better movie. <laughs> was Barbara Shelley just out of the picture by this point? Did she ever come um, back? I think so. I just, I just really think that if you put like a top tier actress in that role against Cushing in this movie, it would be, it would be a different thing. And well, I mean, this is totally the Barbara Shelley role. Why wouldn't they have offered that? I don't know. I, the, the whole time I'm like, why isn't this Barbara Shelley? Um, no, I don't. I mean, she did Quatermass in the pit. And then, I mean, she was acting, she was in a million things, but did she do anything for hammer after that? That is that her final hammer film? I, uh, these are all great questions. I think it is. I, I can't think of anything after Quatermass. Um, but at any rate, um, (laughs) not to shit on the poor actress who actually played this character. She's fine. Who who is quite good in the film. She's fine. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Quatermass. I I just wanted a little more gravitas to it. You know, like not only is that the last listed hammer movie for her, that is her next to last credit. Uh, the only other credit that she has is ghost story in 1974 Mm. as matron. So one imagines not necessarily a huge role That's even. crazy, because she was so good. Um, well, she did wow. back to back to back to back to back to back to back. Like, uh, and that's a lot of backs. Uh, you know, she did like Village of the Damned, Shadow of the Cat, The Gorgon, Dracula, Prince of Darkness, Rasputin, The Mad Monk, Quatermass in the Pit. That's a hell of a run in yeah. just the space of like a half a decade. Yeah, that's crazy. But but no, the the Brandt stuff is really interesting to me, um, and I think that's sort of the the sort the duality of man and and soul and you know what we're capable of that that is typically present in a Fisher film. Do you think he envies Brandt for his success with uh, you know not just in their you know uh, field, but also the fact that Brant has kind of gotten it right. He is a fully rounded, he's a much more complete human being than Frankenstein's ever been allowed to be. And so, and, I and yet look he, at where Brant ended up versus Frankenstein. You know, which, it's like Brant, right. Ended up in an insane asylum and, and Frankenstein had to quote unquote cure him. Although, which, <laughs> well, Yeah, and he does. I mean, that's the interesting thing, is that what Frankenstein does, does bring Brandt's mind back, right? Like, he does. He succeeds. Now, granted, he has to defy the sort of, like, laws of God to do it, Um, but Brandt, for all intents and purposes, is who he originally was once more, once, once that experiment's done. So, my question is, is, like, is that proof that what Frankenstein's sort of proposing should be further explored or is it 
proof that what Brant sort of posits that this is this is sort of against God and shouldn't be done. I think, I think that's the question that goes back. You know, forget Hammer. Don't forget Hammer. I love Hammer. But, you know, going back to Shelley's novel, you know, it's, you know, at what cost progress, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and what what good is it if we make all of these advances, but we lose our humanity in the process? And that's totally the duality on display. You're right, between Brent and Frankenstein here. And I wonder if it doesn't fuel... Again, I'm probably reading too much into it, but fuck it, it's fun. Um, not only is Brent a more complete man, I think part of his being a more complete man is the fact that he is able to have a loving relationship with somebody, and that's something that Frankenstein has never had. In a way, the rape scene in this movie kind of underscores maybe his desire to, you know, not just lust after someone, but to be with somebody. I think it's interesting that you have this older couple held above Frankenstein and held above his head, would that not in its way be a driver for him to want to destroy the younger couple, you know, to to prevent them from having that thing, which is constantly denied him. Now, I don't know that any of that is actually writ out in the text of all of these films. No, but, but at the same time, I think it does more than anything, more than anything that's on screen, more than anything we've talked about. That makes sense to me to explain away exactly what the fuck Frankenstein's deal is in this movie uh, compared to the other films that we've seen. I mean, hell man, the, the movie's called Frankenstein must be destroyed. I, I, I wonder if a more apt title might not have been Frankenstein must destroy, you know? And the thing I was talking about a second ago, you know, uh, you were talking about Brent. Sure. The difference between the two men and their pursuits and how they go about them, you know, uh, what's it say that Brent ultimately winds up in an insane asylum I think it's kind of wonderful that Cushing sends the character out on the exact same note. He winds up in an insane asylum. He winds up in the place that Brandt was before. That one imagines yeah. is like this deep-seated fear. With, uh, with far his. less to show for it, too. You know, oh, I nothing. think that's I think that's part of the point, is that Brandt still has someone that loves him, and, and he had a life. Although, the other thing is, Cushing... Frankenstein offers Brandt a second chance at life, and Brandt doesn't look like a monster. Sure, he's got a big scar on his head, but he looks like a person. You know, it's not like the other movies where, like, the Frankenstein's creature, like, looks monstrous. Like, Brandt doesn't look monstrous. Yes, he has an ugly scar, but that could probably be covered up by, like, a wig or something. You know, know, it's all of the other monsters were like, my God, I can't live this way. Whereas with Bran, it's just kind of like, you look like a normal guy. Yeah, I'm kind of (laughs) like, dude, you're overreacting. You got your mind back. You don't have to be an insane (laughs) asylum. Like, if if your wife loves you for who you are, it won't matter. Like, you're you're a person again. And you're probably younger. Like, you'll probably live longer than who you were previously. So part of me is kind of like, you, his reaction to this is more on principle than anything else. Like, cause he looks in the mirror as though he's monstrous. Um, and, and again, that to me is the Terrence Fisher influence where it's like Brant respects the laws of nature. Um, and, and, and recognizes that he had created something that, or, or discovered something that was not meant to be discovered. And his price was his sanity so that that thing he found out would forever be protected by his lack of coherence, you know? And 
I think that his true reaction to that is that 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 dangerous piece of information got into the wrong hands and he feels responsible for that. There is again, we've talked about this ad nauseum at this point, you know, the, the, the rape sequence and the fact that it was never scripted as such. And yet it's there, it's in the movie. And so it's, it makes it even more disturbing how it shot her final moment and how Cushing's Frankenstein elects to kill her. Like that on its own looks like a violation of the same sort. You know what I mean? It's just, it's, it's an extra icky note. Uh, Paul, just to indulge in a bit of fan wankery for a moment, Brant, you know, given who he is in the story and, you know, if there was any sort of like, even friendly rivalry between the two. You and I have talked about this character returning to the franchise, and it was a shame he never did. But instead of Brandt, what if that had been Paul Kremp from Curse of Frankenstein? Oh, yeah. That would have been great. I, I'm, I'm always mad they never brought Paul back. He should have been there at the end, or at least close enough to the end. Yeah, yeah. Well, especially because he was essentially Frankenstein's father. You know, like, that's it's the closest thing he has to a dad. Um, it's also why I have a lot of problems with Paul because, <laughs> because Paul has more responsibility. He's, he's got more skin in this game than he allows himself to admit to. Oh yeah. And, and it always seemed kind of shitty to me. And like, it always feels like Paul kind of got off the hook. Whereas Frankenstein took all the brunt of the work that they did together. Like I, I always kind of felt like that Paul should have had more of a comeuppance or yeah. Returning role in the franchise in some capacity. Certainly Frankenstein, the monster of hell from hell would have benefited from his character being in it. That would have been a cool addition to the ending. Yeah. And I mean, kinda, even having kind of getting Carrie always back in. Absolutely, Bring, yes. Bring in Carrie Elways. <laughs> Bring in Carrie Elways and a saw. Bring in Paul. Uh, no, if that had been... Man, if that couple had been Paul and Elizabeth all those years later... Mm, that would have been great. He could have been, you know... You could have Frankenstein go to, like, a therapy session and then, like, a slow clap from the back of the room and then Paul <laughs> with a cane. <laughs> Grizzled. <laughs> I know you're joking. But I wish this had happened. <laughs> it would work. <laughs> it's a great way to introduce a forgotten character. <laughs> no, I, uh, this is a beautifully made sequence. And the, the movie is, you know, I wasn't sliding Fisher when I said it looks like a Freddie Francis movie because Freddie Francis could oh, shoot a yeah. damn good looking film. I just mean, you know, there's a lack of theatricality to it that we've come to expect from Fisher's films. Yeah. Uh, at this point, you know, and it, it's a little more stripped down. It's a little more bare. It's a little more, uh, uh, for lack of a better term, because it's late and we're both tired, real world as it were. And, uh, but I kind of like that. I think it really suits the story. I don't think Fisher's normal lighting, you know, schemes would have assisted this story. And I got to imagine he was smart enough to realize that. And that's why he reigned that kind of, you know, visual palette in. Yeah, and I mean, it was shot by Arthur Grant, who did, I mean, God, shot a million 
awesome movies, but he shot like um, uh, Curse of the Werewolf for him. Um, Which is a good looking movie. It is a great looking movie. It's also just a great movie. Um, but I mean, you know, he also shot not for Terrence Fisher, but he shot like Plague of the Zombies. He shot the Reptile, the Witches. Um, he shot Plague know. of the Zombies. Yeah. God, that's a great looking movie. I know. I, it's that's one I always lift up as one of the best looking Hammer movies. So I think like it, it's got not only does it have a good director, it's got a great cinematographer. And I think I think Arthur Grant's cinematography really comes through in the lighting. I think this movie is incredibly well lit. It's very it's it's much more simplified in terms of how how the camera's positioned angles and things like that. Like it's it's more straightforward, like you were saying. There's not a lot of visual nuance to how Fisher visually creates a scene in this movie. And I attribute that a bit to just this being one of his latter films, he was probably kind of kind of at the end. I don't know that he had the same energy he had when he was making, you know, films 12 years earlier. But every scene has an incredible sense of depth um, and, and sort of lighting nuance, shadow, um, that makes the film a rich viewing experience even if there isn't a lot of unique style at play yeah yeah absolutely and this is uh i'm sorry i just i i what a headboard man (laughs) I, i think we're at the part of the podcast where we talk about the headboards i think that's where we're at at this point we both <laughs> we have exhausted i think you know we i will say this though man like we have stayed this is like i don't think we deviated at all i don't think we ever went on a tangent this whole movie which i i don't know that we've ever done that <laughs> uh no i mean usually we you know we we usually run the gamut between uh uh barely talking about the movie at all <laughs> To talking about the movie quite a bit, but still digressing quite a bit. This has been all Frankenstein must be destroyed all the yeah. time. And uh, I'm okay with that because uh, oh, you know, yeah, we nearly, yeah. if this fucker had been 10 minutes shorter, not only would it have moved better, but we might have made it all the way to the end credits talking solely about it. <laughs> we would have. Because we're at minute 90, like right now, I think. Or within seconds. But yeah, I, I, again, I do think this movie is too long. It is 10 minutes too long. Um, and it's all the cop stuff. Cut, I mean, it's the, the only time you're ever going to hear me say this, but cut out all the Thorley Walter stuff. You just said that out loud. I know, but it's true though. And it's not Thorley's fault. I love Thorley Walters. You you just sent out into the world the thought that less Thorley Walters would be better. No, well, cut the rape scene for one. And while well, you're at yeah, it, yeah, you 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 trade me. Uh, I'll trade you rape for Thorley any day of the week. Yeah, but the rape scene's like a couple minutes, so you still have to cut more than that. But man, yeah, the the this whole conclusion to sort of the the Brant stuff his soliloquy towards his wife in secret it, it's compelling 
Um, and it's an interesting thing. I just wish maybe the character had been a more consistent component of the film. Yeah, absolutely. It, it would have yeah. had that, well, not just the character, that entire relationship. We mm-hmm. needed to see that even if, and I know this isn't, th- this wasn't the sort of storytelling that Hammer indulged in back then and likely not many movies of the sort, but even if you had a prologue, something brief that set up those two characters and their relationship to Frankenstein, something to ground it when it pops back up later on, you know, but instead we're expected, and I will give the movie this, like we're expected to care about these characters that were introduced to fairly late in the game, at least in person, we're expected to care about them pretty quickly. Like we have to jump on board straight away, really late in the game. And for the most part, due to the performances, it nearly works. Um, but I agree with you. It doesn't quite get there, you know? Um, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's asking a lot of us as a viewer to, to fully invest in their relationship for this climax when we, we only saw one side of it and we really only saw that one side in the latter half of the film. You know, we don't even meet Ella Brandt until gosh what minute 40 i mean she's not a part of the early part of the film you know we we meet we meet a uh, brant in an insane asylum but he's not who he is you know he feels more like a a plot device than an actual character yeah yeah which is a shame because that that character in that relationship should be the heart of the movie. But instead it's almost like the movie is asking us to take everything that we've invested, uh, into the two younger characters. Yeah. And just poured it over to the older couple. Like they're passing a baton between the two, you know? And it's like, movies don't work like that. Like our, well, and that's a good point. Because in some ways it's showing like how many different lives Frankenstein is ruining and different, different types of relationships. Because on the one hand, you've got like Anna and Carl at the beginning of their life. You've got Ella and Frederick towards the end of their run. Um, and how Frankenstein is able to permeate both couples and completely dismantle their lives um, through his own sort of selfish desires. Uh, And uh, I think that that corrupting element is what's so dangerous about him. Uh, And again, strikes me as something that Terrence Fisher would be interested in because as a, as a devoutly religious man, I think corruption really fascinated him. Um, and, and that's indicative in all of his films. Like, how do you take the pious and sort of bring them to the, the dark side, uh, which will ultimately unravel their, their lives, even if their intentions are true? Yeah. No, I agree. This gives me Breaking Bad, bad vibes. Like, oh my god, the totally. gas. <laughs> I just want Brant to shout to the heavens, he can't keep getting away with this. 
<laughs> it would work here as well as it did in that show. Oh, dude, that was such a cool moment in the show. My favorite show of all time is that show. It's up there for me. Uh, Six Feet Under would be my number one. Um, uh, Doctor Who, Battlestar, Breaking Bad, The Sopranos, they all sort of hover in that area, I think. Breaking Bad's the only show I've ever watched where I felt like every single minute of that series meant something mattered was amounting to something and all of it paid off. Like that's why it's my favorite is because I just feel like there was never a second that was wasted. And I feel like that's so rare. Like, I don't know that I can think of another show now. Granted, I haven't seen a lot of shows, but that's the only show I've ever watched where I felt like that was the case. Even the, uh, even the plane crash. Oh no! I, I yeah, I I think it all made sense. I think okay. it all worked. It I just sense. that to me was like, <sighs> well, season it, two it seemed like more contrivance than any. Yeah. Like everything in that show, there is a a uh, a cause and effect. Like everything right. is so beautifully well, but, but written. It's the... like, oh, good. Oh, no, you're fine. I, I was gonna say, don't you think the plane crash is the perfect? microcosm for that very cause and effect that the show is about like like something that seems wholly unrelated to what he's doing um from the get-go is ultimately a direct cause of his bad decisions i think and and the show completely traces how you get to that uh the idea i think is wonderful the fact that they teased out something horrible having happened at Walt's house by having this debris in his swimming pool. That was just a bridge too far for me. It was a little too cutesy for me, yeah. given I everything would else that surrounds it. I would agree if the show didn't ultimately completely unravel him. Like, no. if we never got that moment of his life is ruined and everything's fucked, then I would agree. But because we do eventually get that, I'm okay with uh, a misdirection early on, if that to makes me, sense. To me, it's, I mean, obviously there's loads of, that, that show is substance and style working hand in hand. And to me, having those flash forwards... And showing all that and having us believe that it's something that's horrible that's happened right at that house, only for the reveal to be like, holy shit, isn't this a coincidence? Could you believe it? You know, it felt like that was the one time where the style of the storytelling was outdoing the substance itself. And to me, you could do that entire sequence, cut out all of the flash forwards, cut out the debris falling directly in uh, his backyard and just have him see a news report and make the realization that the shit that he was doing had far like wider reaching effects than he ever could have possibly imagined when he first took up the role as would be burgeoning drugs are. I think that would have been so much more powerful mm. than what we were getting. And don't get me wrong. This is, nitpicking on a very fine level. <laughs> it is, but I, I show, respect it. I get it. it. But again, you know, it's like talking about, and I'm, you will never hear me compare these two 
pieces of entertainment slash art. One's art, one's entertainment. Yeah, you know what I mean. But you'll never hear me compare Breaking Bad and Army of the Dead again. But it goes to what I was saying about Army <laughs> of the Dead, where I enjoyed the entire thing, but it stumbled in its last few minutes. But the reason they stand out in such great relief is because everything else before that was actually quite good. I feel the same way about Breaking Bad. I think Breaking Bad overall is a work of absolute genius. I think it's one of the greatest television shows ever made. And it's because of that that its missteps to me stand out, you know, more so, you know, that they, they itch a little more because it's like, Oh, that's the one time it wasn't perfect. Okay. You know, but again, it's, you know, I'm, I'm hardly bashing it. Holy shit. We're at the end of the movie. And Um, thus concludes our podcast on breaking bad. Terrence Fisher Uh, directed the hell out of breaking bad. I think there are concerns in breaking bad that Fisher would have just had a ball with. Um, I will say it's interesting if this was going to be, if there was a time that this was going to be the film that was going to wrap up the Frankenstein cycle, I think there is something beautiful about the fact this is not the first time we've seen fire in this franchise, but I like the idea that, okay, with the universal series, the creature was the star and the creature was deathly afraid of fire. Right. Mm Mm-hmm. In the Hammer series, you know, the monster was Frankenstein himself. He is our star. He is our lead that leads us from story to story. Um, this I is love the one the, where he becomes the monster. It really way. does. And I love that he is destroyed much in the same way that, you know, the, 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 the monster that we know feared so much. I love that he is picked up and just carried into a roaring fire. You know, I, I think By his own creation. Yeah, that's it's perfect. It's wonderful. Do you think it's uh, interesting, though, that there is something to do with fire in, you know, in every Frankenstein story, they seem to hit on that idea, you know, fire playing into it in some way. I won't say every because God knows there are, you know, there's so many different iterations of the story and, you know, riffs on that material in the original book. But but fire and Frankenstein kind of go together like peanut butter and jelly. Uh mm-hmm. And chocolate, depending on you know, Universal or Hammer. Um, it's curious that they're excellent. It don't try and mix all three. Just tried that once. It was that that sounds horrible. It, it, it was worth trying. <laughs> now I know. Well, I I respect the I respect the try. You know, yeah. it's I have a little Frankenstein in me. I wanted to experiment, and I created a monster. Um, but. It's interesting to me that fire seems to be where these stories naturally want to end. When the book ended in ice, when it ended in water and the freezing cold, I just I, that's always amused me. Uh, I won't say always, but still, like I, I, I find that to be such a fun <clears throat> idea. No, yeah, I, I think. Well, one fire is just a lot more interesting on film than ice right i mean there's it's just a more visually stimulating thing to see and then too i think that fire fire is a great metaphor because it it destroys and also sort of allows for things to be rebirthed um so it's a great kind of thing to tie into the frankenstein mythology um and i do think it's really fitting although i i adore I mean, the final movie in this franchise. I think it's one of the best ones. So I'm glad they... I, I think it's kind of crazy that they actually got to make that movie. Yeah, it the, to me, 
and this is going to be crazy too. And so I, I have not watched it in a few years, but um, Monster from Hell is maybe my least favorite. Oh, really? See, I really yeah. like it. I, now, I'm, I say I'm excited to talk favorite. about it. It's still friggin' fantastic. I, I would rank it, like, for me, it would be, like, top three. I think it's after... Because I go back and forth between... Uh, I, I, I agree with you. I think um, Created Woman is probably the best, but it's hard for me to pick it over Curse. I go back and forth, but it would probably be like either Curse of Created Woman is one and two, and then after that, it would probably be Monster from Hell. That's I fair. really love that movie, um, but but at the same time, like you're right, they're all good. Um, so whatever's last in my rotation is still a movie I really like. <laughs> it's probably, I mean, it it might be. Is it the best horror franchise? Like pound for pound like every movie being good because i can't think i mean personally i can't think of another i love the halloween franchise i'm very partial to it but i'm not going to sit here and say that every single movie is a winner <laughs> yeah you know, um, it's like i can't pretend that that's the truth and boy, i can't really think of other question. franchises that like because i think frankenstein might actually be the most consistently good horror franchise I would, and here's the thing, I say this and I know that I'm going to be in the minority. I've caught a lot of hell for this. <clears throat> but I would put the Psycho franchise right up there. I, I think mm. those first four films are No, I don't just, I, Yeah, um, I, I think all four of the Psychos are great. I, I don't like the remake. But, no. uh, I don't like the, the remake. I do think the remake is maybe one of the most important movies ever made. Um, <laughs> yeah. And the Cabin Fever remake for similar reasons. Yep, we've they, had this they, conversation. Before, like, yes. yeah, we have. Yeah, if I was if I was teaching a film class, that would be uh, that would be a thing I'd do is I would show those movies back to back and talk about you know how filmmakers like uh, it matters. It matters who shoots your script and what and their vision. Um, you know, because a script can be very different things under different perspectives, but. I digress. <laughs> All right, Paul, we're at three hours, Chief. I think we need to go ahead and wrap up here. I think it was a good Probably talk should. on Frankenstein Must Be Destroyed uh, and loads of other things that we talked about for an hour and 15 minutes beforehand. Um, <laughs> I think we only talked about what? Like four movies, five movies, but... Uh, I don't know. That was why this is so long. We We had a very long opening, which is fine. But, you know, that was... We got it all out so that we could have a mostly film-based commentary. Uh, it was all intended. So, all right. <laughs> all right, man. We're going to go ahead and hop off here. Tell you what. Why don't you tell this? Oh, holy cow. Messing that up. You know what? I'm not even going to cut any of this out. Folks, listeners, we're both very tired right now. We're doing our best not to slur. I haven't even had anything to drink. Uh, but, uh, Paul, where can folks find you out online, man? And what are you working on? What do you got coming up? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at uh, Paul is great 2000. Um, uh, what I got coming up, uh, there will be, I mean, there'll be a new hammer column. Uh, and I've, I'm so far ahead at this point that I'm struggling to remember what's next. I think devil rides out <laughs> is next, oh, nice. uh, which will be coming out in the next couple weeks. Uh, I just had a new dead ringers drop, as I kind of briefly mentioned earlier, 
which is also hammer focused uh on curse of frankenstein and horror of frankenstein and i felt like it was a really really great episode um it was it was awesome and we had a uh, daniel epler from the cobweb cobwebs podcast on it and that's and, something uh, you mentioned in your conversation that you and daniel like you hate that you sounded negative paul the last time that you and uh, you and Daniel got together, you 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 threw a hell of a lot of shade at Dracula Untold. But to your mind, you thought you guys were being pretty positive about the movie. Well, I think the I was fact, being fair. The fact <laughs> that you are concerned about how negative you've come off the two of you on Horror Frankenstein. Three of us, because no one, does, no one was a part concern. of this as well. <laughs> it does concern. I haven't listened to I, it I, yet. I but... think I do think it. Well, the reality is this: we we discuss curse and horror back to back as a double, and we talk about horror sort of as a revisioning of curse. And frankly, as much as I enjoy horror, it it doesn't really work altogether and it's not the best sort of revisioning of of the things that curse does really well and it doesn't have terrence fisher at the helm you know it doesn't have the same sort of visual style and and prowess that that first movie has um so and and i liked it more than my (laughs) co-hosts let me put it that way so i was definitely fighting a tide but um, I think we did both movies justice. I think uh, the conversation was really good. And uh, yeah, so obviously if you like this podcast about Hammer movies, you'll probably like that one. So check it out. Good deal. All right. Now, folks, if you want to find me out there, I don't know why, but if you do, I am at Jinx1981. Paul, as always, thanks so much. Oh, you're waiting for me. No problem. Wow. I was I was sipping a beer and wow. it was in my mouth. At that the part. drinking commentary is over, sir. You don't well, have to drink the beer anymore. Yeah, I don't have to, but like, you know, I swill. want to. Swill. Swill. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go watch an episode of Creep Show. Oh, nice. I bed, so I have to, you know, get primed. I think I'm Out. on the Joe Lynch one. Oh, which I think you directed too. Are you doing the space one? I think the space one. I'm pretty early still. I I watched like one week, so I'm pretty far behind. But you know, I'm spacing them out. Thank you, dig it. Thank you, dig it. That's a great one. All (laughs) right, let's try this one more time. Ready? (laughs) We'll do a countdown. Ready? Five, four, three, two, and thank you, Paul. No problem. Happy to be here. Perfect. And thanks all you <laughs> listeners out there. As always, please make certain to like, subscribe, share, use the comment section below. Scream at us on Facebook and Twitter. That's at Screamatics, and I'm at Jinx1981. Until next time, folks, thanks so much, and have a great weekend. So we, I, I nearly said evening. I, I, I always say weekend, though, right? It's, they might be it, listening to it like... Oh, my God. End episode!